Sure. All right. You ready? All right. I'll do my best. All right, everybody. Welcome to the December 5th meeting of the MMTC Multimodal Transportation Commission. As always, we start with our five o'clock study session. And um, I don't think we have to take roll because there aren't any action items necessarily, but we have a decent amount of folks here. And Jessica Mortinger of MPO is here to present the pretty far along progress update of T2050. So take it away. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I think this is a good opportunity. We realized when we did the T2040, we got to the end process. And besides the few uh, members that you had appointed as representatives on yours on the steering committee, that you were really surprised at how much we content we gave you and all at once right with by the time we post an agenda you give it, you get a week to review it and so i was really thinking strategically about how we can introduce you to the draft content we really have out so you noticed it's in varying stages of completion of what i gave you it's not it's not by any means final drafts i'm showing you some content we're getting ready to go out for a shorter public comment period for and we'll kind of review some of that and kind of tell you a little bit more about our next steps in the final process and timeline that we have for doing this plan i want to introduce you to some of the bulk of this content so you can get have some opportunity to get comfortable with it before we come back um you know we have this shorter public comment period for phase two, a 30-day public comment period. That's our formal comment on documents once we released a final draft. Um, the policy board does that. Um, to be able to, you know, so some of this that you're familiar with already and that you have an opportunity to give me some feedback and gut check reaction conversation about where you think you are, where we th you think we are, if you think we're missing something, that gives us a lot more time to be responsive to the things that um, your opinions and comments and thoughts about this process. Also, um, knowing your role as the city advocacy group for this larger regional transportation plan. So um, I think my thought would be, I'm just going to walk you through some of this stuff. It's it's not a really, I don't have any real high level formal presentation. I gave you hundreds of pages of stuff and I realized that. So I want to just kind of show you what's there, recognize you'll have more time to review it. I want to answer any questions you may have if about resources or what's coming um, and do that. So please feel free to interrupt me um, as we go through this. I'll be happy to stop and we can talk about anything or go look anything up. Um, Nick submitted some stuff to me in person, so I know he has some stuff that's going to be good to incite some conversation at, at any of those points. So as we get to some of that, Nick, please feel free to um, weigh those in too so they can be part of the larger conversation. Let me share the screen. Okay, so I'm linked. This is everything linked um, from your from the agenda that I'm giving you, and I'm not going to open them in the order. I have them going to open in a different order, but it's for good reason. Um, first, I want to point out to you, and I would tell anybody who sat down with me that the MPO has a very prescriptive public participation process. So we have very clearly in our public participation plan, um, detailed the types of events and the levels of investment and engagement we're going to get from the community as we do our public processes. For this process, we have a public steer, a publicly appointed steering committee, a staff advisor committee, um, and then we have a public process that's open at large that involve, includes two main phases where we're asking questions. Um, one's the very large at front phase where we're saying to the public, tell us about your transportation experiences. That's what this appendix includes so far. Um, and so you can see it's 56 pages. 
It's a summary of all of the locations where we tabled um, the stakeholder interviews that we did um, with agencies who have populations who may not always may be underrepresented in the transportation planning process. Um, and as a result of that, we got over 700 survey responses um, through our 19 tabling events kind of in May and June. Um, we went to all the communities you can see, um, and here's what we heard. And so you can look through this at a high level. People tell us about what modes they use. Um, it's a self-selected survey. It is not statistically valid. We know that. This is a planning tool. So we, have the, we had the opportunity this year because the City of Lawrence did the ETC survey um, that we asked similar questions about um, satisfaction with mode um, as the ETC survey. And that gave us, we looked at preliminarily, we, we'll go back and we'll share some of that results um, when we get into the final plan, in the final planning process, because they were they give us preliminary ETC stuff. They were still doing some final work when we presented in August to the city commission. But to give you an idea, Overall, and we'll show you on the boards how people rate their satisfaction and some of the impact things that impact each of their modes to satisfaction. And then you can read, we tried to high level categorize um, comments that we got to make them more addressable. If you're looking for something in particular, I would suggest you using the control find feature, control F feature to word search this document. Use it as a tool and a resource to you. It will always be out there for the length of the plan. The old one's out there too. If you're looking to see if somebody commented about something in, in specific. Overall, it gives you a really good context of the diverse perspectives that we have in relationship to transportation in our community. Um, and so that is all available to you. Um, we publish what we get. So that's what you're going to see in this document. We do then um, take the opportunity and we will show um, when we go back out to the public to try to tell that story about here's what we heard at a high level to filter that down back to reconvey re reconvey the, the message that we heard from the com community. Um, this is Lawrence only results and we have to fix this. I realized today when I was uh, going back to look at my the relationship to the ETC survey, but they're, re they're really close. Um, so we look at across our surveys, and oh, one of the things that you may want to note, you'll pay attention to, don't get sick as I'm scrolling, um, is at the bottom of this, we ask some demographic, demographic questions. And this is, this is important because we want to understand who we're hearing from when we get this comment so we can understand. Public input is one part of the planning process. There's also existing conditions and best national best practices that we have to, and federal regulations that we have to weigh in altogether as we're drafting this document. But this really gives you an idea. You can see the number of responses. Remember, it's self-selected. So even though there was over 700 surveys, anybody can choose to answer or not answer any question. And then you can see the breakdown on each question um, in relation to that. And some of these, I was hoping this is the version, I mean, we may not have done that in the version. In the final version, when we do this, we will show you the demographics of the community from the US Census also, um, from the county. So you will be able to see that. And I thought for some reason we had that for all, maybe that was one we didn't have. But we will have that in the final version. That may not be the one I have up here. We've been, like I said, these are all works in progress as we're trying to get through this. So I apologize if that's the, if that's the case. But um, if you don't see something like that and you expect it, 
we'd be happy to answer that and do that. But we want to do that because we on the inside, like we internally also want to understand with the steering committee who we're hearing from in the community as we weigh the comments and input that we got from the public. So as we go back out to the public, we have uh, a, you know, the very first public engagement process, we asked, tell us about your experiences. And we heard a lot of things. Now we're honing it in, right? Because we're saying, okay, here's what we heard. Here's what people told us our priorities. Um, and here's how we're responding to that, which is the update of the language around goals, objectives, and strategies that were from T2040, looking at national federal legislation around changing goals and um, priorities on the federal level, um, and just existing conditions of the things that we know um, based on what things are happening planning-wise in our region to really target in and hone in on the stuff we know that's going to happen in the short term, but also set some visionary stuff for the long term in terms of direction that's consistent with Plan 2040 or Eudora Bolden City comprehensive planning. Um, and so this at a high level, we will ask, we have this board about this to ask the public um, about some of that. This, this phase of engagement requires a lot more of the public. It requires them to respond to something we are giving them, and we are aware of that. The response rate we get um, to this is usually one-tenth of the response rate or less, 5 to 10 percent, um, that we get from our first phase of engagement. We do, it's a shorter time period. We do... Uh, we do sometimes either open houses or some tabling, but it's not as extensive. We recognize that we are asking a lot more from people when we get to this point in the process, but it still provides us the opportunity to gut check and to check um, the work that we feel like we're doing with the steering committee. So you can see all of that language here, and we can talk any, if you want, we want to stop and talk about any of that, I'm happy to do that or wait. Do you want um, to go through all of the attachments you have first? Yeah, I, I I'm fine. I'm I'm fine to do it what whichever way. Okay, I, I have a feeling we'll probably skip around anyway. Okay, so they're connected. There. Yes. Okay, let me just go through that. Okay, so we present a lot of the stuff you've probably already seen with adopted uh, regional or Lawrence pedestrian plans, the countywide or Lawrence bikeway plans. Love you know some of the stuff you've seen about priority network and level of comfort. Um, so some of this is just as much education as it is about getting information back from the public. Um, we're showing transit in terms of. Um, things like our ridership over time, um, you know, and you can see here there's not been a return to pre-COVID um, transit ridership. Um, you can see um, the connection we have back to the opportunity that Transportation 2040 has to updating the major thoroughfares map, which serves as the street classification map um, for the uh, Lawrence Douglas County Plan 2040. Um, and then you can see in here, some of this stuff is included in the PowerPoint. So we haven't gotten it in here yet. We just got it last week from the modeling consultant. So you'll kind of see what we're talking about when we get to that. In, in terms of that, one of the major federally required elements of our transportation plan is a travel demand model. And this provides us the opportunity. And so some of this is very technical and we can get into as much of it as you want or not. Um, but at a high level, we created a model that's calibrated to 2019 conditions. And we are able then to look, and we do that based on traffic analysis zones where we have population and employment characteristics programmed into those zones. And then we build the transportation network, the street network with characteristics of what the network exists. Um, and then we take the opportunity to run that model. And this is a validation model, and we have to get a validated model before we can move on to scenarios. And so this is our, our validated model. It's very highly valid. Uh, 
validated. It has a high, higher R squared value than our previous model. It's very, um, it was, you know, very fine tuned in terms of as far as a regional model gets for travel demand. What you're seeing here is the red is the values predicted by the model that was run to replicate the green, which is, which is the observed counts. So those are all the locations where we have traffic counts that we use to validate the model. And you can see you can see where federal guidance is and where we are and where we are in terms of plotting all those um, to uh, track that. You can also see overall when you add up all the VMT, we're uh, in a 1% difference. Um, and so we feel really good about this model and the assumptions that we have in this model. Um, then we take the opportunity to say, here's all the stuff we know that is committed. And so we've programmed, you can see the realignments of different roads or some of the segments that we're looking at based on major thoroughfares and other KDOT or city county projects that impact the model characteristics. So things like geometries or lane capacity, um, operating characteristics. And then we have the opportunity to work with our city county planning department. And we work with them based on plan 2040, which is adopted, um, to look at our population projection out both for city and county to 2050. And so you can see those projections here um, based on the work that they've done and the assumptions they're making in the population model. They also then, um, we also then say, what else is known? So Panasonic is a big, big thing that wasn't necessarily projected in that. It's conversations we've had with the city of Eudora and assumptions about their growth and things that we know that are going to happen or that are, that are in the works. Other things like K, KU proposals and those different things that might impact where we're thinking about that growth is going to occur and how that's going to happen. The one thing I would point out is Plan 2040 has growth tiers. And so Plan 2040 is under the assumption of Tier 2. Remember, we're out to 2050. So we're beyond that. We're into Tier 3. And you're going to see some of that um, in the TASAs. And so what that looks like then is working with our planning staff to identify where that population distribution that we've looked at just in numbers, um, we believe is their capacity within the current code and the current comprehensive plans to have that occur and where, that, where that's going to look like beyond that where it's maybe not covered by those plans. And so you can see that here as a representative in population change um, and, and where the density of that's going to look at. Here's a zoomed in Lawrence version of that. You can see some of it scattered throughout, um, but really uh, high proximity of it um, in some of those, in some of the tier two areas um, along the periphery and also uh, um, a little bit into the tier three areas. We then take um, the woods and pool. There's a, there are some employment projections that we purchase um, part, through our travel demand model. And we look at the projections around the types of zoning for commercial and industrial properties identified in plan 2040. Um, and based on those areas, we make assumptions under those conditions where that type of development can occur. There's ratios that are tied traditionally to this type of it growth in relationship to population. And so as a result of that, that, those factors are used and there's assumptions made about where that's going to happen. That also depends on what type of employment. And so you can see there's some different colors represented there. In the model, those attributes are tied to different trip generation factors. And so we use that 
Um, and you can see kind of where you see that added growth and population, which then translates into uh, a travel demand model that represents volume over capacity. And so we get an output and we're gonna continue to tweak this um, based on some no known conditions that we have, based on um, different things as we start to look at this and see. So sometimes the model will attribute traffic to a certain thing because the link segment is shorter and the travel time based on speed is quicker, but there are different things that we tweak then to go in and tweak to understand how some of that based on the existing conditions. Um, and this is kind of where you see the volume and capacity. And we adjusted some numbers and we um, added some presumed collectors in relationship to uh, major thoroughfares. So I think we're gonna add some more network um, that we believe would need to happen to support some of this. Um, and this again is committed projects. So this is assuming all the K-10 projects that are already committed. This is assuming um, other projects that you already have seen um, in the city CIP. This is the assumption of these happening, but no, no new projects. And so um, we have included that list here, this first comes out of our, you can see if they're carryovers or if it comes out of our transportation improvement program, that all of these would be accounted for um, in the model conditions. Um, we also this time went to a mode shift, mo uh, mode split model. And so we have the opportunity, this is the new 2023 projected transit service, looking at it with the projection of assumed uh, fare free in 2023. And this um, is looking at based on that service and uh, bus stops where we would expect ridership density to happen. This is validated to stop level information. So this is probably one of the best pictures we have in terms of boarding and alighting data and stop level validation um, in terms of ridership and what's happening um, in that regard. Um, the cool thing about this is it gives us the opportunity to run scenarios um, around different uh, configurations. So we're at that point now where we're talking about um, what does that look like in terms of we have done this, and so it continues to be an iterative process to adapt to those land use configurations. We're talking with transit and planning and our staff team about what that looks like in terms of thinking about do we need, do we want to do another scenario that uh, makes assumptions about uh, future code changes and density, ramping everything up? Do we want to look at something that more heavily projects downtown density based on the master plan? Um, do we want to, because remember the other stuff is really based on plan 2040 and there's some other stuff that has changed since. And so um, we will, we will be, continue to be doing that work. Um, the goal would be able to be to present that to the public as soon as we can. That's my hope for what we are starting a public comment process next week. And so we are in that kind of final stage. We didn't have that available yet finished to be able to share with you yet, um, but you should expect to be able to see that. And um, and we'll hope to then be able to share that. We won't be able to probably meet like with you or the steering committee before we do that. But um, it's a, it's a, it's been a process to get there. So the other thing I've given you um, is an over 100 page document, which lays out a lot of the details and assumptions at a really high level around all of the existing conditions in our region for that we would want to consider and that play into each other around uh, transportation planning. And so this is probably 
valuable to you in the sense that if you're not familiar with this or you haven't seen this, it has a lot of content in here. And um, some of it's finished, some of it isn't finished. We're still uh, finalizing some of our crash mapping and crash analysis. Um, some of our maps, we still have formatting work to do on, like standardizing some labels and stuff. But this is our this is our best kind of draft. And we, the reason we want to do that is we want to get as much of this out there as possible so people have the opportunity because this is collaborating with dozens and dozens and dozens of parties to get information. And so this is an, our opportunity to say, okay, here's the best information we have. What are we missing? Um, one of the things we heard at our steering committee process is you're really missing a lot more content about air quality. So we've taken that opportunity to go and write more about the situation, you know, where we are in our precedent with our air quality standards and monitoring. Um, we heard uh, we were missing content around, um, you know, and this is some of this has just evolved from transportation 2040 around electric vehicles and and thinking about planning for. Uh, you know, market-driven vehicle charging and some of that opportunities. And so you'll see some of that identified in the in the, strat goal, uh, the goals, objectives, and strategies, um, but also, you know, recognizing some of the stuff where we've been and where we're going in terms of all this collaboration of work um, that has occurred across our region, um, not only in the city, but in the other communities and the unincorporated parts of the county. So... This is something you probably have to spend a little time with. Some of this may matter more than other stuff as you kind of read through this um, draft. But this is the a big bulk part of the, the volume of the plan between this and the, um, the appendices for public engagement so far. So this, if you have a chance to look over this over the next month or so, by the time we get a draft out, um, you will have looked at probably the majority of where we're at in terms of content um, developed. And so um, we have done that by putting this out here, showing you kind of we're developing it as we go. And it's there's um, if you haven't seen it yet, it's probably because we're working on it. It doesn't exist yet. So that's what I, I put everything on there for your consideration. I'm happy to talk about any one thing or all the things or however you want to have your discussion around where we're at and where we're gonna be. I guess I can say something about the timeline. Okay, We are federally required to update this plan, to adopt this plan in March of 2023 to ensure that the current T2040 does not expire. If it expires, we freeze all federal funding in our region for transportation. We don't wanna be in that situation. Yeah. So unlike much of the work we do that does not have a timeline, this has a pressing timeline. So as I'm talking about some of these things being more condensed and pressed, it's a matter of the work, getting the workload done within the time that we have. That means a draft has to be posted by January 12th so the policy board can release it for a 30-day public comment period to meet, meet the March agenda timelines for adoption. Um, and so I think we're trying to be advantageous to ourselves by showing as much of this as we can to get as, as much stuff as addressed as we can early on if there's remaining issues or context in the community that we want to talk about. So, so does it have to be fully adopted by city commission by March? No. So it has to be adopted by the MPO policy board. That is the legal entity that the that FTA and Federal Highways recognize as having the regionally adopted plan. Okay. We will then proceed to have a separate process where we uh, pur purview this back to planning commission, city commission, county commission, um, mainly because then we will be taking it to them to accept and adopt and amend plan 2040 to make transportation 2050 the transportation chapter of plan 2040. 
And that will be a like that process is after. <laughs> that's not even that'll be that's just a you know a process that we do. The, the bigger thing is meeting the deadline for the federal regulations. Do you foresee a lot of revisions happening after MPO policy board adoption? Or is that usually not the case? We have never had revisions after MPO policy board adoption, except for years later when we've had amendments related to project-specific fiscal constraint, where we've had to do amendments to be able to obligate money for projects. Okay. To my knowledge, those are the only amendments that we've done. However, I would say I've already had conversations internally with staff about the, the conversation. We are in a unique situation for a couple different reasons. The city, Lawrence Douglas County is doing their code update, one. Panasonic, two. Three, all of the big major projects that we've had in Ike just recently got committed for funding from the state. So there hasn't been other projects discussed. I mean, this plan is going to lay a foundation for a few things, I think, um, related to related to other things um, related to that and just seeing what happens with Panasonic and something. So. The third thing would be, and specifically with the code update related to major thoroughfares, we are adopting a map based on the current standards tied to in land development code. If that changes, the process that we would need to use then would be a, a transportation plan amendment to update the major thoroughfares map. And we would follow the amendment process to do that at a later time if that needed to happen after the code was adopted. But that process is not going to be far enough along that we can do it as part of this process now because of the regulation for our time constraints. And so we've had some conversations because there are some pressures where we're at a point to adopt this. Another part of our conversation is the city is robustly developing an asset management process. And there is a lot of unknowns related to that, both in terms of levels of investment, but also future projects outside of the CIP, where in other years, we've had a lot more things known and laid out related to K-10 or other development and growth. And I think there's a lot of speculation with land use and other things that we're, gonna, we're making our best assumptions based on what is currently adopted available to us in this regional process within the MPO's role, right? Because some of those things are outside of our role um, to change. And so there could be a need to adopt this plan besides just for projects. And we would have that conversation when we get to that point in the process and need to do that. And hopefully if it came to any of those things that would be identified as future as work that would need to get done. And we would prioritize that work as needed. So specifically for the major thoroughfares map, not much you can do about it at this point. That classification is set by the existing land development code, right? So, okay. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, so it's set in there in that sense, like here, you know, and, and if you, even if we would change things, we could change, but what are we changing it to in the, in advance of that, those conversations, like it's not appropriate for us to do that in a separate process. And so, We've had those conversations because I'm speculative, like what happens if this completely changes? And the conversation is we would follow the public process for updating transportation 2050 to make the changes that would be needed to be able to do that, which then of course would involve another process to do another. I mean, there's process and we would do the process. So. All right. So I think at this point, let's open it up to the commission, do you guys have any general questions, specific ones? Feel free to jump right in, I guess. 
I just have a quick clarification question. So the <clears throat> plan title gets shifted to 2050. Can you clarify like how many, what's the most out year of any of the committed projects? Um, I don't, they don't go past 10, the first two bands. So the first two bands, like the first band is, so we banned our projects in typically five years. We're, we're getting it on a five-year block. So it's 2023 to 25 and then 26 to 30. I don't, I mean, there may be a couple things that are like KDOT plans. That's like K33 or K or US 56 that they program in some out years. But for the most, I would say that's less than 5% of projects. Um, and that's just because we're guessing those, that's kind of where those would happen. Um, other than that, for any city, city stuff, there's no committed projects outside of what's in CIP. Okay. I mean, I that's there's, to know. there's some presumption about two things. One is there's a line for O&M, operations and maintenance, and that is assumed across all of the bands, but it's, there's no specific projects tied to it. And, this, the, and then, of course, um, the second thing is I think there's presumed assumptions, particularly in the model, around private development, and as that would occur, right, that those roads related to that development would be, would be required as part of that. But however, we don't speculate what band that is. There's no, um, unlike the land use plan, which has tiers that are tied to time constraints, the network that we lay out for, tr for the network for transportation does not have timing necessarily played into that. Okay. And we do this every five years. <laughs> so as we, or we amended it, you know, if we get into a situation where we need to, but I think that's the big thing is plan 2040 does not happen every five years. They have longer terms between updates of the, of comprehensive plans. This federal process requires us to do this every five years, which really means four years and then, or three and a half years. And then you're starting your next year and a half long process. So think about that in terms of where we've been. This is the third plan I've worked on and we are in a very different place than we have been two plans ago, just in terms of the level of investment and work that we've done in transit planning, in bicycle planning, in pedestrian planning. Um, you would go back and read that old plan and you would probably just be shocked um, to, see the, to see the comparison. Is the title uh, open for reconsideration? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> I mean, I'm just, I feel like it does, it does send a message that is a bit confusing to say 2050 when I guess I'm looking for like, where's the evidence that anything in there is committed beyond 2040? And why not 2060 for that matter? Like, yeah, so it's why, it's why the out year for the yeah. I mean, it's the out year for the model. I'm open to suggestions. I laugh a little bit mainly just because I ref, I'm re reminded of a process of like color design on maps by committee. But but I would be happy to entertain that. It so in the context of the, the model is using data projected to 2050. Yes, you have to federally at least cover 20 years in your planning. So we're federally required to ensure that our projections around financial projections for available resources, our projections around employment and population for our travel demand model are plus 20 years out. We we had it we would have had a choice. We could have went to T2045. I chose 
2050 because we'll do like we did 24. We don't. Yeah, we'll do 2050 and 2050. We'll so the next one will be 2052, and it'll be an update in that in that sense. It's pretty typical for regional long like MPO transportation plans to have an, the out year as part of their title. It's not required. We could call it whatever we want. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a suggestion? Another you could email me. <laughs> There's some leeway, at least. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Any other general or specific comments or questions? All right, well, so I, I'm going to jump in. Um, can you hear me okay, Kurt? Should I always be facing front? All right, I've been kind of playing fast and loose with the microphone, so. Okay. Um, I saw that Vision Zero was one of the suggestions in there. Um, I guess just, I feel like it would involve a major restructuring of how we do a lot of stuff. Do you see, I guess, a real possibility of this being something that, that we can implement and make meaningful progress on? Or, uh, I don't know, because like some cities, I feel like, have adopted it and not much has really happened. It, it, it usually takes countries that have the rest of the wherewithal to do, like a Sweden or something. To actually make a bit of a the change, city so. commission has already made a commitment to a vision zero safety action plan when they submitted the safe streets and roads for all grant to the feds um, it is federally required to be eligible for that funding to produce a vision zero safety action plan okay. it formulaically has to have a vision zero goal and specific de like detailed metrics of how you're going to like over time get to that goal okay i think politically that statement has already been made in relationship to the eligibility or consideration for eligibility to that funding the statement in the plan reflects that commitment from cities in the region to pursue that okay that makes more sense i wasn't i do vaguely remember that being in the safe streets for all grant but i didn't realize that was actually a requirement to even apply so yeah if you okay. read the if you read the language it's very specific you have to have your your vision to zero and you have to set targets to get to zero you have to set a reduction rate and you are going to have to probably based on engineering standards prove that the measures that you're taking and the money that you're expending is going to is going to get you there so kind of like with one of the agenda items that we have later where there's basically you know three years later after changing something at 13th of mass we can show that there have actually been less crashes so yes Measurable goals and measurable actions. Yes. Okay, well, I have a good feeling about that. I just feel like in some cities, before it was required in the safe streets, it seemed almost just aspirational and like it wasn't going to go anywhere. But with some teeth in it at the federal level, that, that, that feels good. Yeah, I think the conversation about safety has really changed, and I think we're all going to have to educate ourselves. And I'm we're starting some of this conversation. I think after T twenty fifty is done, there's a whole lot of federal literature about a safe systems approach. And um, I went back and looked at this recently because Pat asked about the strength of our language in goals, objectives, and strategies related to education and encouragement. And safe systems approach does not talk about education and encouragement. So I would encourage you well, us all to go read that. I think we're all going to have to elevate our education about the new structure they have for for safety um, it's really really focused on infrastructure it's focused on built environment um, it's focused a little bit on our ability to respond to some things and um, vulnerability and a lot of different things so I don't know what that all means yet I read some of it and I think like how does that actually operate how do we actually operationalize that so I think a lot of that's to be seen if we do some of that vision zero planning I believe we would do it with a consultant um, 
that's kind of how we've laid it out in the scope of work that we've talked about so far. But I, I would encourage probably all of you as you think about safety to read a little bit about some of that and look at how other communities are doing vision zero safety action plans very specifically because that's the direction the feds are uh, prioritizing resources to. And it's a, it's a very different narrative than the 5E's approach that we've cr traditionally taken where we're thinking about engineering, education, enforcement, evaluation, encouragement. Yeah, I think, don't you think that, you know, in the past, even though we had those 5E's, I mean, the infrastructure wasn't, there wasn't much behind that necessarily. I mean, certainly some, but it's relying more on the education enforcement or, you know, to make, to make the changes, you know, so it, it seems like from, from the feds, it's like swung the other way, you know, hopefully not to the exclusion of the other, you know, it's, um, but yeah, it's it's hard to know. I think equity probably pay, plays a large piece in some of that, just like the same way that Safe Routes to School took out enforcement out of their program entirely. Um, I think there are going to have to be conversations about what that means nationally, about what that means locally. Um, those things probably still play a role. Um, but... I mean, it's similar to things like distracted driving and cell phone laws, where how are you enforcing that? And it's only as powerful as you enforce it. Um, you know, I think all of that is going to be interesting to see how that evolves. Hmm. We're going to have to do more work there. As a, I mean, as a we as professionals, I think, you know, you probably as the as the commission, but also the community, we're going to have to do that work with the community. Mm -hmm. And that's what the Vision Zero Safety Action Plan lays out a very intentional process for. So if we get that grant, I mean, it's going to be a great opportunity for us to face that very head on in a process that that's very focused on that work. When's the, do you know the timeline? For I don't, I don't know specifically when we'll hear back about that. At our last uh, steering committee meeting, uh, Dave Carter brought up the question about the interoperability operability, you know, when we're talking about goals and objectives and then the strategies underneath that and whether there was there was anything in there that addressed that and you said you'd have to think about it and and look at those again. Did did you have a I, chance to do I did. I went back and read some of the, the language around interoperability. And to me, that's not a very approachable term. But if you read much of the work that we have as we talk about complete streets, as we talk about placemaking, as we talk about a lot of the, the form over function, so a lot of the land use drivers, to me, that speaks of interoperability. Um, and so my recommendation would not be to change that language um, and that we do do that, even though that specific word isn't there. Yeah. Which is kind of the thought that I had initially, but was like, well, I'll go back and follow up about that. Yeah, I think that was the just of his question. Too, yeah. Just in terms of it doesn't have to be that word, but just making sure that that concept is built into the into the strategies and i think it's incredibly important mainly because i think you know if you think about it just as a checklist like okay you have pet infrastructure you have this you have this but how does it all work together and i think the driver of a lot of that is going to be some of the countermeasures around safety is really refocusing who the street is intended for and how both perceived and actual safety is on the street. And so I'm hoping some of the programmatic stuff that's happening is going to start driving that. And I think a lot of that's tied to travel demand management. And the reality in some of the model with how you look at volume over capacity for each of those roadway segments is going to be that we're never going to be able to build our way out of congestion. 
And so it's going to force the conversation with density that we have to talk about how we can value the capacity of the street, not just for cars, but for how it operates for moving people and goods. And that may not be in a single occupant automobile. It's not. I mean, we know that. So. Yeah, it's new information for a lot of people, it seems. So it's it's going to be a lot of uh, interesting conversations and public engagement as things go forward. So I feel like I'm, we have pretty competent folks at the helm. So I'm glad that, that uh, we're going to be going down that road. Um, I was curious about the strategies that were in the, the going out to the public poster things. Um, I, I'm assuming you developed those in-house, right? Or were those developed collaboratively with the steering committee? Or how did that come about? Because they're so, pretty good. So we developed those, a first draft in-house. We worked with our staff advisors to hone some of the language, right? There are, some of them are an evolution from T2040, but if you look at them compared to T2040, many of them are very different because we're at a different place than we were five years ago. Um, we then worked with the steering committee to hone them even further, and we probably changed after the steering committee conversation maybe 10 or 15% of them. It was not too, too many, um, but you can, if you go back and watch that video from that conversation, um, we we, there is some stuff we honed and changed based on the feedback that we got from uh, committee members in relationship to many of those strategies. Did you touch on any of the ones that had to be changed? <laughs> Just the general. <laughs> Do you rec- I'm like, uh, lengthy, safety, uh, like, what, what were the Oh my gosh. That's asking me to recall something that I have not committed to my memory. That's okay. That's okay. Um, it wasn't whole big changes. It was more... Uh, stuff that was more like I would say semantics or stuff that was about how the language describes something Okay. and what our intention was and how somebody interpreted it. That's what I would say mostly, but I can't. Yeah. Cause I don't recall that there were any that were added. There were no wholesale ads. It was more wordsmithing, I think to, okay. to make sure that the concepts were clear and, uh, and yeah. not very many of them. Yeah. And, but we did things like, you know, we had to do some, we had to do some work. Like, for example, in sustainability, um, we use the term nature-based solutions. You may or may not have heard of that. That's the new direction of federal language around green infrastructure. Nature-based solutions includes green infrastructure, but it also includes nature. And, na- and nature-based solutions is the preferred best practice language around advancing green infrastructure. So because it includes more than just building your way out of it, it also includes the consideration of how the natural environment can do some of that for you without trying to engineer it. So there are things like that. Like that would have been a feedback thing we got from the staff team that we went and did some research. We looked at all the, the language and adjusted that. So it was stuff like that where the intention is how do we make sure that the natural environment is helping either minimize or that we're considering it as we think of the impacts of land use growth development transportation so so i guess the other part of my question was going to be has any of the strategy sections received pushback from citizens and obviously not because that hasn't been presented yet right correct now i know correct it's not okay uh, and I would say general the consensus from the committee. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, yeah. I guess, yeah, it's always interesting with these steering committees because they're usually composed of people who are passionate about what's going on and usually generally more educated than the public who will be giving the comments on it, right? So I'll be curious to see how it is when, you know, whoever hits the road. And There's a lot of new participants, wouldn't you say? I mean, people who yeah. haven't, I would say over half of the people on the committee are people who have not necessarily been involved in a transportation planning process before. 
So I think that's valuable yeah. to the process. And it seems like the outreach that's been done too has been really comprehensive. I mean, mm-hmm. there were some stakeholder groups on there that I honestly haven't heard of. So that's a, that's a lot of stakeholder groups. Yes, we talked to a lot of and you can tell from the from the input, it, it is on both sides of the spectrum. Yeah, it seems like the comments tend to be very polarized. There's a lot of people who are very anti-bike and very anti-car, very anti-transit or for transit. Um, it's hard to tell how much of that is average, honestly, but the graphs and charts do show somewhat of a bell curve around the neutral, which is interesting. And I would say probably some of that's because people who are kind of in the middle probably don't feel compelled enough to write a comment. They answer yeah, the answer, question. Answer. And so by the number of comments, you can tell really the spe- the spectrum on the ends. And really by the overall data, you can tell where people fall in terms of just thinking about it and giving us a response. So given the amount of, I would say, pro-car, anti-anything else comments, how does that factor into planning given that the federal guidance is now pretty structured around not, I mean, not, you know, more than I do, but it seems like the federal mindset has now changed. So we're going to have to start doing things a little bit differently, which means that a lot of the comments that are pro-car may find themselves kind of out of date. I'm not sure how this is going to factor into planning. Like, do we need to actually work it into the document somehow, or is it just kind of news that you're going to meet some resistance with some of the changes that will be proposed? Because how do you see it kind of coming together? Yeah, I mean, I think you're always going to have that. Um, I would say, though, even if you look back to plan transportation 2040, that exists, that existed, that's existed. Um, and I think that some of the drivers where we started to look at the desired trends for our performance measures in that plan, things like um, if you think about uh, re- reduction in single occupant vehicles and some of those things, we were looking towards that already. Mm-hmm. I think the national language around equity and safety um, are going to further enhance our ability, both financially, but, but also from a more comprehensive perspective at working on some of these programmatic solutions beyond just a checkbox, you know, is there sidewalk? And if you think about that plant, last plan, or the plan two plans ago. And from for any of you that are experienced, I mean, look at the development and the commitment the city of Lawrence has made with the strategic plan on mode shift, on mobility and mode sh- and mode shift. Look at the work that's happened under implementing the pedestrian plan. Um, you know, the committed funding for bicycle and pedestrian funding for the bikeway plan implementation. There is. We have had a significant tone change, and I realize one of the boards, and I'm going to reshare my screen for this re- for this reason, as we talk about that investment. The thing I'm going to sh- go back and share with you is I and I didn't I didn't get all the way to the end when I was scrolling through those boards, um, is we previously projected in transportation 2040 that the revenues available for bicycle and pedestrian funding were at two percent. Yeah. Our new projections based on the last five years of historical investment puts the spending at 6% over the life of this plan. And that's based on the last five years of investment. And it does not consider any of the bicycle or pedestrian elements that are part of roadway projects. That is stand those are standalone funds for bicycle and pedestrian projects. And you know, so that's an assumption over the course of the development that includes all the cities. Um, in the region, but that's looking at, um, you know, $130 million investment over the course of the plan, just based on the past five years. So that's for the so whole if you, county? That's for the whole county. Okay. How much of that is from the infrastructure sales tax? 
I can't tell you that off the top of my head. There are assumptions in this that both the transit sales tax and the infrastructure sales tax for the purpose of this plan get readopted because we have to make those assumptions as we look at fiscal constraint. And we make reasonable assumptions to say, we believe this is where we need to go. We do that for transit as well. And you'll see as we get into some of those numbers and what that means, because for example, a good example of that, and I'm sure it's for a lot of things in terms of operations and maintenance, but also for transit, transit cannot continue to operate the same level of service, all the providers at the same level. So there's some assumptions in there about, you know, like a inflation cause on, um, revenues and an inflation cause or inflationary factor on expenditures that's also calculated into this for us to understand a really big picture. And it's it's high level. There's a lot of assumptions in it. In uh, We have a financial chapter. I didn't attach it to this, but it was attached to a previous uh, steering committee agenda. You can kind of start to see us drawing that that picture and you can start to see where based on the cost and the relationship of O&M and the projections of O&M costs even at base year baseline although we may we know in almost every case they probably need to be more right but we can't tell you what that is yet because particularly the most robust asset management for the city hasn't been completed it's in process but based on just the knowledge that we know we're not putting enough towards operations and maintenance of existing infrastructure um that we will have less and less to do as our money buying power goes, you know, less and less. So there's a lot of assumptions in here, um, but there, the assumption is that those sales taxes um, get renewed and that they're at the same percentage as they are. So any change to those assumptions could obviously change these factors. We're trying to present a scenario to that. I think, you know, transit's going to face that situation because recognizing that they're going to fall into a deficit by, I think, the second band just to operate the same service they have today for all the paratransit human service and transit providers. And so if you think about that and you think about the the pilot for fare free, you know, there's some there are some things out there about how that's going to work um, and assumptions made. So the assumption in the plan is that 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 fare free continues and then so there's that not that revenue but we didn't put we didn't go back and you know what the feds do also may impact that and we've just made best assumptions based on what we have today in terms of those resources this is a really awful spreadsheet <laughs> i don't wish upon anyone so i'm really curious what this graph would look like if it was split by the five entities in this in the county because i would bet in lawrence it would probably look a lot different i mean there's a lot fewer bridges all the bike spending seems to be here and maybe a little bit in the county, but like the vast majority is here, right? But the vast majority of this transit spending is in the city. Also, yeah. So I imagine blue and red will go down considerably and green and pink, uh, yeah. purple will go up really high. I, I just think it'd be kind of interesting. Yeah. We, you'd be able to do that pretty easily once you see the whole financial chapter because the tables break it down by city. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so we just do this because we're presenting it as a regional thing. You'd be able to calculate that probably pretty easily. Okay. Cool. Does anybody else have any other questions? See. I've actually covered a lot of what I wanted to talk about, which is great. I did have a question on the traffic model. So the, the R square value is really, really good, especially considering it's kind of a complicated network of streets to model. What I did notice is that there were a couple of nodes, especially around downtown, that really didn't match up very well at all. Is it just generally expected that more grid-like older parts of downtown that are more multimodal aren't going to match up very well? Is that just typical? Yeah, I think always in modeling, you're making a lot of assumptions about what's happening. Um, there's a lot 
going on. And so some of that you can hone based on how many streets you draw in your network. In some places, we, they're not every street is in the model. So the traffic and it's part of it's a, a factor of how the the loading works from the traffic analysis zones, which are geographical areas, often tied as closely as we can to census areas. So that way you can put demographics with them that starts to match your population for base year. Um, and then from your traffic analysis zone, you have a centroid and a centroid connector that ties it back to the network. And so often the honing of the model and getting it to validate is working to determine that you have enough of the network built that your centroids and your centroid connectors, possibly that network, if it's big enough, may have different connectors about where the loading on the network is coming and going from that geographical area. It's the tying the trips to the network. Then every segment has operational characteristics in it that tell us things about how it operates. And as the model, as the model loads traffic on, it gets busier, which changes the operational characteristics of it, which makes people choose different routes, right? And so what you see eventually is a flow map, which is putting all, just like some of the other stuff we've done for bike and ped, it's putting all the trips on trips on trips on trips on trips on trips. On trips. So there's a lot of things that can be happening. And we work as best we can to make sure for the region that we have a validated model that's trying to best represent what's happening in trip making. Does that yeah. always happen? It's to the best of our ability. So I think there are some places in our community where we know it's harder for us to validate uh, some of those things. I think we've had trouble on 11th Street. We've had trouble uh, on 19th Street. We've had trouble on Castled. Um, Castled is one the model wants to put a lot more traffic on Castled than use Castled. Hmm. Um, but but there's, there's examples of that every time we go through the modeling process. There are some places where that's happening. And so we're working with the modeling consultant to adjust traffic analysis zones. He's working to address centroid connectors. He's doing operational attributes of the roadway um, in terms of free flow speeds and other characteristics. If you look at our model, the model hates the Barker roundabout. <laughs> it, it, it's failure, level of service failure. Well, it's a retrofit facility that's traffic calming in a in a street that it's a residential, you know, collector. And so I'm not sure the model's ever going to be able to operate, you know, operate that because as soon as it gets to that, it's showing the delay of that feature, you know what I mean, in there. And so some of those elements as they're built into the system, the model is, it's still a model. There's so many assumptions built into it. It's supposed to be our best case scenario to really look at volume over capacity for the entire network as we think about it to see where hotspots are going to pop up. And um, as we get into it more, um, even some tweaks that we've done. And when you add more network, you spread out the trips as opposed to having them. So like if you change a few operating characteristics on K10, um, if that delay goes up and the level of service goes fit more towards failure, you're, more people choose to take local network. And so there's all of these moving factors across the model. And I think we are we have the most validated model we have ever had like our our consultant is and he has done an amazing job at being responsive to us to try to ask these questions and figure things out and what you even see now like we are still tweaking it to evolve it if you notice the numbers at the top he's at 146 he's done 146 model runs where he's keeping to tweak things to make it um get to where we want to be in terms of like the validation run mm -hmm. Yeah. So if, if you're interested, you tomorrow night, he will actually be presenting to the steering committee. Um, and so for those of you on that meeting, um, 
you'll get to see that, but you should watch, you could watch the video. Don't all come so we don't have a coma issue, but, um, but you can, we post that video after the fact, 24 to 48 hours. And um, that would maybe one that you'd be interested in just to hear, kind of, you'll, you'll see as you hear him talk about the model. I understand how it works functionally. He knows every intricate detail about it. Modelers are an interesting breed. <laughs> it's very difficult to actually do modeling. It, it, it does seem like for MPO scale, that's exactly what you need. It just, you know, yeah, it may fail at the neighborhood level sometimes, but if that's, you would do a different traffic study entirely, right? So it seems like it's the right tool for the job. I was just. Yeah. Sure and there's assumptions the in the mode split. There's assumptions citywide about mode split. Well, those are going to be very different for neighborhoods in the grid than they are for neighborhoods in the West. The model, I don't think, has the capacity to take that fine-tuned nature of that into account. Yeah. Maybe it does. We can ask those questions. Just based on trip length, it may do it a little bit, but... Okay. Let's see. Does anybody else have any other stuff? couple more things. Should we leave options open to rethink bike lanes? I don't know if you were you there for a discussion at our last meeting or the one before where we're like, you know, maybe we need to to actually prioritize off-street bike lanes that are separated from traffic or something like that. So is that the kind of thing that would make it into 2050 or is that a little bit too specific or maybe it's a strategy? Um, or would that fit in? If at all. It fits in in the sense that every five years we update the bikeway plan, and that's your opportunity to take that advantage under the MPO process to do that. And that's really the opportunity to do that, I think. Um, that's slated really I, what late 2023, early to, in 2024, I think, is our timeline for that. So that's coming. Some of that will be contingent on what else happens in MPO workload with safety planning or freight planning that we're doing with the Mid-America Regional Council. Um, and so... I think that's coming. I would say there's nothing right now in T2050 that would preclude that from happening as part of that process and that discussion. Okay. And the reality is, is that was part of the discussion when we did the last bikeway plan. And the decisions that got made were the results of the conversation with the steering committee as we evaluated those decisions about striped bike lanes. Okay. Okay. Um, speaking of Freight that you just brought up. When we talked in the, I think when we were looking at the location for the new downtown transfer facility for transit, um, there were a lot of concerns from merchants about delivery. And it seems like there's a huge concern of people downtown. But what's weird is that when you go to other cities, especially in other countries, they still manage to run retail enterprises without having third lanes in the middle of every road. So is there any way to look at freight at, you know, from almost a freight parking standpoint to see if we can, you know, try to meet some of the aspirations of the downtown master plan, which were more pedestrian friendly, better walkability, more safety, without also precluding freight deliveries, which it seems like at this point required the space of an 18-wheeler. So, yeah. I think that's going to be outside of the scope of the work of the $1.2 million Mark Freight study that we're participating in that's inter-county. They're going to be looking more at um, functional operations of freight on national highway system and network stuff that's probably a really localized issue it's something that we could talk about in the future i'm not sure that it's regionally significant in the sense that um it's mpo only work um okay i'll go back and read that i haven't 
Freight is something I probably know the least about in terms of freight planning. I haven't been involved in a freight planning process. I think the only thing I saw in there was that intermodal facilities were mentioned. I'm like, well, there isn't any Douglas County. So right, yes. If you wanted to go from 18 wheelers yep. to a van, you can't. And even the freight plan, like the MPO gets involved high level, like on a, like, you know, we get a review of draft or we get asked questions about freight in response to our efforts, but we haven't been highly involved in regional freight, usually because that's often led by KDOT or the Mid-America Regional Council, and we participate in their processes. They haven't had a process since I've been at the MPO that I've participated in. So that's 12 years. So that's quite a while. So... I think this opportunity in the next year is going to be really probably enlightening, especially at the and timely, especially with Panasonic and thinking about um, some high level movement of goods um, in the community. Okay. So we're at six o'clock. Any final questions or comments? If you think of something, please feel free to email me. Um, you have remember you have representation on on our steering committee. You can speak to Damon or Pat about um, anything they've seen or heard or that involvement in that process. Um, otherwise, you probably will hear updates from them until we come back to you. Um, be after March, so April or May in that timeline process um, for your kind of consideration. So I'd encourage you to participate in our public processes. Definitely. All right. Well, thank you very much for everything. It's uh, it's looking pretty good. And I hope you're able to enjoy the holiday season while also working on this draft. <laughs> I do not have any time planned off, so I will be working That's on cool. this draft. The city will be the, the better off for your efforts if it makes you feel better. <laughs> thank you. I appreciate that. All right. Uh, with that, let's take a 10-minute break or is it 15? I always forget what time it starts at. 15, no, no, 14 now. 14 minutes. 14-minute break. So you grab a cookie, grab a bathroom break, and be back here. Thank you. <laughs> it is. Don't scare me like that. Okay. Welcome, everybody, to the December 5th edition of the Multimodal Transportation Commission's monthly meeting. We've already had a study session from 5 to 6, and now we are starting the main portion of the meeting. We are no longer doing roll call for attendance, if I recall correctly, because we're all here in person. I don't think anybody's joining from online. So uh, is there any rules that we have to go over first? Sorry, I really wish I could remember this every time, but are there? Okay. One virtual. Okay, thanks. Thank you. Good evening, everyone. Uh, Dustin Smith, Senior Project Engineer with Municipal Services and Operations. I have a few ho housekeeping items for the hybrid meeting. Uh, this meeting is being recorded and broadcast on the city's YouTube channel and cable channel 25. Please remember to mute yourself during the meeting when you're not speaking. The chat function for this meeting is disabled. All chats will go directly to me. Unless you are participating during the meeting, please turn your video off. This allows the active meeting participants to be seen on screen. You will still be able to hear the meeting. When you are participating, please turn your video on. If you have any trouble, you can send me a chat. The city reserves the right to mute people or turn individual videos off to minimize distractions during the meeting. I'll turn the meeting back over to the chair. All right. Thank you, Dustin. So uh, our first order of business is item B, approve the minutes from the November 7th MMTC meeting. Do we have any questions, comments, or um, proposed revisions? 
Okay, not hearing any. I would entertain a motion to approve them. I move to approve the November 7, 2022 minutes. I second. Okay. Motion by Commissioner Ryan, second by Commissioner Sharp. Um, Christina, can you please call roll for us? Yes. Damon Baltesca? Yes. Brian Reyes? Is absent. Laura Bennett? Yes. Will Sharp? Yes. Pat Collette? Yes. Charlie Bryant? Yes. Nick Kuzmiak? Yes. Aaron Payton? Abstain. I wasn't present. Motion carries. Okay. Our next item is general public comment. So uh, the public is allowed to speak to any items or issues that have, are not scheduled on the regular agenda. Public comment will not be received for staff items, commission items, or calendar as a general rule. Each person or organization will be limited to three minutes. As a general practice, the commission will not discuss nor debate these items, nor will the commission make decisions on items presented at this time. Individuals are asked to come to the microphone, sign in, and state their name and address. Speakers should address all comments to the commission. Do we have any general public comment from folks in the room? The item's not on the agenda. Okay, anybody online? Not at this time. Okay. Sounds good. Moving on to regular agenda items. So our first mm -hmm. item is to consider pro providing a recommendation for the permanent traffic calming installations in the Old West Lawrence neighborhood. Hi. Good evening. Dustin Smith, Senior Project Engineer with Municipal Services and Operations. And uh, coming back to you with our uh, recommendation for traffic calming in Old West Lawrence. Uh, step back and and kind of give a recap of, of where we are how we got here um going back all the way to september 2021 when we started working with our neighborhood representatives from old west lawrence developing traffic calming plan collecting data um revising the plan collecting more data and then um uh having the the team from the neighborhood uh, develop a plan based on their preferences and deciding to do a test pilot and collect data on that version of the plan. We're calling this uh, traffic calming plan version three. Hopefully for, for clarity, I'll refer to it the same all the way through. So we installed uh, traffic calming plan version three in October, kind of uh, found a window in between KU football games. To, to let things settle a little bit, um, installed and then waited a week to start collecting data on the uh, traffic calming that's out there currently still. And then uh, while we were collecting data, or I guess we did wait until we had the data so we could present the data while we did a Lawrence Listen survey on this version three of the traffic calming plan in the neighborhood. <laughs> so we, we've... Uh, reviewed the data, reviewed the survey, and have uh, developed recommendations for uh, what, what we would uh, like to move forward with, with on a permanent installation. And uh, with that, I want to uh, turn it over to Stephen Buckley, our uh, traffic engineering consultant with JEO Consulting Group. And uh, he has a, a presentation kind of 
of, of the analysis and the recommendations he's he's done and going to share from here thanks All right Thank you, Dustin. Again, I'm Stephen Buckley with uh, JEO Consulting. Page down to slide through these. That page, oh, page down. I guess I could just or scroll with the mouse. Okay. Page down works. Page down works. Okay. Maybe turn off numbers lock. No? Down arrow. Down, oh, down arrow. Oh, maybe I'll just scroll. It's not working. Um, okay, well, again, Stephen Buckley, JEO Consulting. Um, I'm not the IT guy, so. Uh, um, but yeah, good to be here tonight. Seems like I was just here talking about version two, and tonight we're going to talk about version three and, and uh, offer some recommendations uh, for, uh, for moving forward. So I'm not going to spend any time on these slides, but I wanted to include, you know, kind of how we got to this third configuration, just as background in the slide deck, why the first, why the second. We talked about this last time I was here. So I'll start here with why the third configuration. Um, as you all know, we were unable to, to find a broad community support uh, for the medium barriers. Um, you know, got some positive feedback, got a lot of negative feedback, and so uh, they were removed going into version three. We did put, we had put down some speed humps and cushions as part of version two, and those were maintained, and so those rolled over into version three. Um, you know, in, in, in meeting with the neighborhood group, uh, there was increased emphasis on speed reduction, uh, with less emphasis, though still important, um, on, on reducing cut-through traffic. Um, Really, it was the opportunity to evaluate the effectiveness of new devices, such as traffic circles and half-lane closures. Um, and then finally, it was a recommendation of the, uh, version three was a recommendation uh, of the Old West Lawrence traffic safety team. And so we experimented with, um, with traffic, circle, uh, traffic circles. I'll talk about, talk about this a little bit more in a, in a minute. Um, you know, Circles are generally used on local roads, like most of the streets in Old West Lawrence. I don't, I don't think the city uses them on collectors. You can, but I don't, I'm not sure the city uses them on collectors. So we, we did not put any of these on Main. We, we put these on, um, on some of the local intersections um, at 7th and 8th in the neighborhood. And, uh, but we really weren't able to evaluate their effectiveness for two reasons. One, we weren't able to build the full circle because the full circle includes a truck apron to allow, you know, mobility through the intersection. And uh, we just didn't have the, the temporary tools to, to make that work. So what's out there is really just kind of just kind of the, the center of what would be a permanent uh, installation. And then probably more importantly is uh, the city's policy on traffic circles is no, no stop signs. And so... Uh, but we did not change any of the any of the, the stop patterns at the intersection. So, really, don't feel comfortable making any any uh, conclusions from the data based on uh, of the traffic circles. Uh, what we're what we're showing in the plan as half lane closures are really similar to chokers. We put those at many of the gateways to the neighborhood, and um, uh, these uh, these are intended really to to be the first thing you see when you come into the neighborhood, be on the advanced side of parking. Uh, I know that the city's policy is maintain 20 feet uh, of, 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 uh, of width for the street. So they, they would stick out a little bit further than you see now uh, from, from the parking. 
and um, really give the opportunity to put some kind of a sign or, or, or something in there, you know, welcome to our neighborhood, please slow down. You know, you're driving through a neighborhood. This isn't, this isn't a, a bypass. <clears throat> and of course, you're really familiar with speed humps and speed cushions, which is what we use on main. Only difference is the gap for emergency vehicles. So this is what uh, this is what went. This is our version three. Uh, this does not show uh, the permanent devices, the ones that were out there a year and a half ago. Uh, of course, there's a, a circle at Eighth uh, and Michigan. Uh, there are speed humps on the 800 block of Arkansas and Missouri, and uh, and then of course there's cushions on the 700 and 800 block of of Maine. So those are not shown here, but those are obviously part of the traffic calming. Um, that's the permanent traffic calming in the neighborhood. So we collected three weeks of data. And when we started this a year and a half ago, back in September, we, uh, we started with 24 blocks. So we identified 24 blocks in, in the neighborhood and we collected data. We had eight counters, we had three weeks to count. And so we went ahead and, and and counted those original 24 blocks. So when, when, when we say before, before isn't before version three, before is before version one. This is like last September, 2021, before anything was done out there, before any of the barriers, anything. So that is the before. We're comparing the, we're comparing the latest after to the original before. Just wanna make that clear. And you know, looking at the numbers, they look great. Um, and I, I think there's some reasons for that. Uh, it, it, it's hard to fault these numbers. Um, everything's going down. You may recall that Michigan, uh, after versions one and version two, saw about a 20% uh, increase in traffic. Well, now it's down to 3% because we've taken out the barriers. And, and also on Maine, after versions one and version two, we saw about a 40% increase in traffic mm -hmm. on Maine. And now it's down to about 21%. So this is a, a heat map, if you will, of the neighborhood. Uh, we also have heat maps after version one and version two. If we were comparing those, well, let me explain the heat map first. Um, so basically purple's good. That is where uh, traffic has decreased um, by greater than, make sure I get this right. Traffic has decreased by greater than 30%. Uh, light blue is where traffic has decreased uh, by 10 to 30%. Green is really unchanged, 10 to 10. Uh, orange is where it has increased between 10 and 30%. And red, which we see none, is where it has uh, increased greater than 30%. Again, if we were looking at version one and version two, same map, you would see a lot less purple, uh, a little bit more orange and some more red. And so this, this is really a good reflection of, of the positive data that, that we saw. I had a similar slide last time I was here talking about versions one and version two. Uh, basically, just looking at the local roads that we, we, we counted, of the 24 blocks we counted, 21 were local, were local roads. One was Tennessee and two were on Main, arterial and collector. Uh, so of those 21, 17 saw a significant decrease in traffic volume, which I consider greater than 10%. One saw a significant increase in volume, uh, that was, uh, that was the 700 block of 
um, Ohio. But to, to keep that in perspective, we're talking about ADTs around 200 to begin with. So um, still, still low compared to the rest of the neighborhood. And then three streets were generally unchanged. <clears throat> We also looked at uh, before and after speed data, again, comparing this, these are before speeds last September, last year, uh, and, then the, um, and then the after speed data uh, with new Humpster cushions. These are really encouraging numbers. We're seeing about an average of five mile an hour reduction in the 50th. Uh, of course, the 50th percentile is a speed that half the traffic is going at or below. So, you know, for example, uh, the 600 block of Maine, before, uh, half the traffic was going greater than 25. Uh, now, uh, only half the traffic is going greater than 21. Um, and so th those are all encouraging numbers. I think it, it's, it's proof that those, the vertical deflection, those speed humps really do work in slowing people down. Drew up a heat map of the speed data, just, and just, just kind of point out that you can see where, where, we, where we put in the humps uh, as both version two and version three, you can see that's really where we saw significant decrease. Um, and uh, just wherever we put in the humps, uh, they worked. Do want to compare um, our after changes from version one, version two, version three. The first, those are the numbers we saw after version one. And obviously the numbers, the increase on Michigan and Maine were discouraging. Uh, we dropped we, we dropped traffic onto local roads, but but it, it just it was too put too much pressure on Michigan and, and Maine. With the second one, of course, we took out the diverters, we left in the barriers, really didn't see any change on Michigan and Maine. And now with the third configuration, uh, we do um, Michigan's kind of back to normal. Maine's still up, uh, but I want to add a caveat to that here in a bit. Um, so in summary, you know, traffic volumes have decreased in the neighborhood over the life of the pilot. Um, and I, I think that's borne out in, in all the data we've collected. We've collected a lot of data um, before, after version one, after version two, after version three. Um, and traffic volumes on the local roads after the third configuration are lower than volumes after the first and second. We talked about the improvement on Maine. We talked about the improvement on Michigan. Um, you know. I, I'm hoping that, you know, maybe traffic's learning over time that the local roads in Old West Lawrence are not intended as, as through streets. Um, maybe that's Pollyanna of me, I don't know, but I, I may, maybe we, we, there's been so much, you know, so much attention on this neighborhood and so much, uh, so much work on this project. And, and um, you know, maybe people are catching on. It's like, I'm not supposed to cut through Old West Lawrence. Uh, having said that, let me add a second bullet, the caveat, um, keep in mind that we did version three, we took a week, and then we counted the next three weeks. And so I'm guessing that the numbers we're seeing are as good as they're gonna get in terms of volumes. Because um, I would expect as people realize, hey, the barriers are gone, um, you, might, you might see some cut through traffic increase. So the results may degrade over time. I hope not, uh, but that is a possibility. Wanna throw that out, out there. Speed data shows significant reductions where we put in the humps and the cushions. And I, I think the data is encouraging. I, I was really encouraged by the by the results. I think the neighborhood did a great job putting this plan together, and um, and so I think it mirrors consideration of staged permanent installations uh, as uh, as recommended here. Um, 
My re our recommendation uh, that we bring to you tonight is to implement uh, a portion of the third configuration with emphasis on the chokers and the speed humps. Again, we really weren't able to evaluate the circles. Um, and uh, so I, I really think, uh, I think we're probably gonna get uh, the biggest bang for our buck out of those chokers as kind of gateways to the neighborhood and, and then the speed humps as far as, as, far as speed reduction. Um, I'm not dismissing the circles, uh, but I, I, because traffic circles, I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a number of things with the traffic circles. We don't know it, if we can build them without impacting the curb returns. You know, if, if, if we can keep the circle in the center, um, great. But, you know, to really maintain um, circuity around the intersection, you might have to make some improvements to the curb returns. Uh, the challenge is that Old West Lawrence, as you know, yeah, it's 30 by 30, which, which is good, but there's very tight radiuses in all four corners. So uh, not a whole lot of room to work, work with. Um, but really, uh, another reason with, with the traffic circles, besides the fact that we couldn't evaluate them, uh, I really think that before we make a recommendation to go with the traffic circles, the city really needs to consider a citywide policy on the use of traffic circles. Because unlike the chokers and unlike the humps, that's, real, that's a change in traffic control. Mm -hmm. um, because you're taking out the stop signs and changing the traffic control at the intersection. You know, that should be done by an engineering study or have an engineering study that you know, establishes your citywide policy. Um, and so that, that's why we're, we're, we're not recommending moving forward with the circles tonight, but we're not dismissing them. Um, I think the city should, to consider a policy and then and then go from there. And finally, uh, so this is what we're recommending. Um, and I said just just to clarify, when I say phased within budget, you know, obviously we don't know what the budget is for this project, but um, I would say if 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 you can't do it all, if you can't do all the chokers and you can't do all the humps and cushions, then we could prioritize by ADT, meaning the traffic volumes. If you can do it all, that's what it'll look like. And really, we're hitting, we're hitting the major blocks, uh, the major north-south blocks through Old West Lawrence. Uh, everything we're hitting has ADTs to begin with over 400. The blocks we're not addressing have ADTs under 400, so that's, that's kind of a good, a good dividing line. Um, and um, so we're addressing Mississippi, we're addressing um, Indiana, we're addressing Maine, we're addressing Missouri, Arkansas, and Michigan. And that is it. Thank you. I, I did want to, um, we had some members from the neighborhood team that wanted to uh, speak as well, and we, we wanted to include them. Thank you, Dustin. My name is Katie Oliver. I'm a resident of 824 Arkansas, a member of the traffic safety team and co-president of the Old West Lawrence Association. Thank you for allowing me to speak on behalf of the Old West Lawrence Association officers. After several months, we are excited to see promising results from the third pilot. The reduction in average daily traffic volume and speed will improve the safety of our neighborhood. 
While we have not had sufficient time to fully analyze and address resident feedback from the Lawrence Listen survey, it seems the overall impression for the third pilot is favorable, at least considered to the two previous versions. <laughs> we greatly appreciate the efforts of the traffic safety team, JEO, and the city to pilot the neighbor developed design. We consider this a success for all involved. Permanent installation of the speed humps and chokers, as recommended, will undoubtedly continue to reduce traffic speeds in Old West Lawrence, but we are confused and concerned by the recommendation to omit the small traffic circles. These are a widely supported method of traffic calming by the neighborhood and could remain as installed as temporary devices for several years, as was done in the University Place neighborhood. They also worked, as shown by the pilot data. If these are not to be a part of the overall plan, we should consider alternate ways to stop or slow traffic at our intersections. At a minimum, we believe they should remain until the permanent speed humps and chokers are installed. <clears throat> Another concern of the board is that the city intends to remove everything for the winter. I have been a part of this project from the beginning, way back in September of 2021, and we were told that the temporary devices could remain in place until permanent devices were installed. Removing all devices from the neighborhood at this point after months of use will confuse drivers and residents. It's a huge safety concern. We are so close to the closure of this project and believe if these two items are properly addressed, all stakeholders will benefit. Dustin, Stephen, we greatly appreciate your efforts and the engagement that you've done with our team as well as the neighborhood. I realize that you didn't have to do any of that and I, I sincerely appreciate it. It's been fun working with you guys. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hi there, everyone. Uh, Kyle Johnson, 705 Main Street. <clears throat> um, I'm speaking to the Lawrence Listens data specifically. Um, now, I just took a quick stab at analyzing the data since we only recently got it in fact this afternoon. <laughs> so it's important uh, to highlight a few caveats. Uh, number one, this is a very quick analysis. We'll need more time to parse additional information from the results. Number two, in the future, it will probably be helpful to have a data capture method for neighbors in addition to Lawrence Listens for this kind of A-B testing, you know, version one, version two, version three. We probably need to empanel the neighborhood and ask the same people the same questions after each iteration. The Lawrence Listens approach does not validate the identity of respondents, nor does it necessarily get responses from the same people. So it can be somewhat helpful, but we need to keep these limita limitations in mind. Number three, finally, it's our feeling that angrier people are more likely to take the survey and people who are less angry, less angry might not. Uh, so again, this, this kind of panel approach might be helpful in future iterations of the project. Still do the Lawrence Listen survey together, as much information from the public as you can, but the panel, you know, testing the same people, same questions, I think could be helpful. Um, so just from my quick look at the data, number one, respondents who claim to live in the neighborhood prefer version three over version one by about five to 10 X, depending on how you interpret uh, differences between the questions, because this recent survey was a bit more precise with the questions. Number two, at least a majority of respondents who claim to live within the neighborhood favor moving forward with a layout based on version three. And uh, it's likely, again, that many people who are satisfied probably didn't take this survey, whereas I might have taken 
uh, a previous survey. So we'll need to continue the conversation, as Katie said, over the next month with our neighbors to understand feedback, both positive and negative, and look to add to our understanding prior to the next MMTC meeting. Thanks a lot. Good evening. Uh, Charlie Sedlock, 630 Indiana, and slowly migrating to 700 Illinois. So I'm getting the uh, project results uh, at, at a couple locations. So uh, nearly two years ago, our neighborhood challenged uh, the executive board and a few volunteers, foolish volunteers, myself being one of them, to increase the safety in the neighborhood um, and, and to do it in, in, a, in a fashion that was fair in, in Old West Lawrence. And so I think what we've um, all achieved here through a, a lot of work is a massive decrease in, in frequency and severity here of accidents. And so that's how you increase safety in a, in a system. And so we have decreased speeds, we have decreased volumes. And so Pedestrians, bicycles, young, old, uh, strollers, et cetera, are, are better off now. Uh, my ask, uh, you know, in, in alignment with the others is to keep keep the devices um, in place, the temporary devices, until we're uh, ready to replace um, each, each of those devices. So if you have to replace specific unique devices with permanent ones, we, we keep the others in place. Um, and and there's, a, there's a valid reason for that, not only the, the very important one about driver confusion and, and what's what. Um, in the spirit of continuous improvement and experimentation and Lawrence to further its ROI on this and other projects is we know the geometry can still be slightly changed on the half lane chokers and the geometry can be slightly changed on the traffic circles. And as Stephen was saying, that merits more study. And so by keeping those in place, we can work with the city to learn more and get a better ROI. Um, the city uh, also, I think, even though this project has taken us a while and there have been several iterations, we now know more about median barriers. We know more about diverters. We know more about small traffic circles. We know more about half lane chokers. We also know how to try and attack the challenges of a grid system, which are very, very tough. Stephen and the city told us that right out the gate, but we think we've achieved um, success. As Kyle was saying, we are prepared to help the city improve this project if they're interested in our viewpoint. We have a lot of folks in different technical fields. I spend a ton of time improving organizations and process mapping. You can tell Kyle has a, a fair amount of knowledge on, on, on statistics and others on, on the committee and in the neighborhood as well. We want other neighborhoods in the city of Lawrence to further benefit for years on improving the neighborhoods and, and improving the safety in them. In terms of the strategic management plan and the items that you guys are charged with, with hitting in terms of elevate the inclusivity, inclusive community, make transportation unique uh, in terms of its identity to Lawrence, connection between the climate action plan and transportation, elevate equity on decision making and for non-motorized users. I think this project actually, I don't think it's a stretch to say that this project actually checks all of those boxes. Uh, our team has worked hard. We've worked a lot of hours, so many that I probably need to start charging rent to all the other team members. Um, thanks to them and all their hard work, 
thanks to the staff and JEO, Dustin has done real yeoman's work on this project. He's been out walking the neighborhood with us, understanding the challenges, the good, the bad, the ugly. He's been out there doing it. And thanks to you for listening and, and being part of this. And we really appreciate your consideration on this project. Thanks. Okay, I, I think with that, we're, we've kind of reached the conclusion of our formal presentation, so uh, stand for any questions, and for any of us, I think we can take turns up here if we need. Okay. Um, would you all be okay if we went directly to public comment, seeing as we're kind of already there, just in case anybody else wants to chime in? Yeah. Let's, yeah, let's just go directly to public public comment, and then perhaps we can kind of focus our questions to everything that we know. <laughs> so does anybody in the room have any comments on this item that hasn't already spoken? Anybody online? Not at this time. Doesn't look like it. All right, well, anyway. Um, in that case, we'll bring it back up to the commission. So any commissioners have specific questions or comments? for either the consultant staff or the neighborhood. I'd like <clears throat> perhaps some more insight into the notion that we might do a more citywide study of the use of traffic circles. Is that something that, like, what would be the time for something like that? And would we need to Put a moratorium on traffic circles until that's done. I I, I would definitely agree with the the second part. Um, I I would say, you know, developing any kind of policy would would not happen in the timeline of of this project. Because um, it, it I I agree with Stephen. I think it, it because they are traffic control devices. It it's a little more than than you know, the pure traffic calming devices. And so it does need some sort of formal policy of when we would use them, where, what they look like, what signing, you know, pavement marking, all, all the kind of engineering details that would go into it. Any sense of how long it would take to do that? Uh, off the top of my head, I, I, I don't have a, a, a good answer for that. Would it be reasonable to expect it in the next 12 months? Um, Jake, you have uh, any thoughts on that? I, I think we just have to weigh that against other priorities. Um, that might be something we can discuss with the work plan for next year. See how that fits in. Yes, I'm wondering is that for in the last couple of years we looked at citywide issues like speed limit, and then we move forward with the neighborhood traffic management program. And this sounds like another one of those citywide considerations similar to the speed limit. Um, if it's, if it, I guess I'm not sure is what's going to happen then later. Is it just then that cues up for how it impacts neighborhood traffic management or do we start to see, you know, traffic circle requests all over the city? 
or are we being proactive and saying we need to install 50 traffic circles and here they here are the locations like which direction are we going not sure i have a good answer for you okay <laughs> um if i may i was kind of curious about the traffic circle thing too so i think the first question i have is knowing what i know about the sort of core neighborhoods there's actually a couple of those little traffic circles that don't appear to have any additional curb cuts or any extended, I guess, under any longer radii turns connected to them. So I'm looking at 8th and Michigan, which frankly I didn't know was there because I never have a reason to go on that street. There's one at like 17th and Mississippi or something. It's sort of right below KU. And then obviously 19th and Barker, but that's a little bit larger. Um, there's just kind of a couple of random ones scattered throughout. Did a traffic study have to take place for those to go in? I don't know if this is like long before you guys time or if they're new or what so just any sort of context on what currently exists would i think help make the decision easier for us i know um all of those examples were definitely before my time okay i'm, I'm not sure if there was a, a a study specific to those are they are they different are those different than the ones that you're talking about or considering for all those lines the, I mean, it, it seems like it's the same treatment, basically. Correct. Yeah, I would design. anticipate it would, it would be a very similar appearance to, to the examples of 8th and Michigan and, and in the University Place neighborhood. Or it's a, a smaller circle with a barrier curb and then a traversable apron for larger vehicles. Mm-hmm. So when you were putting the traffic circles in place, I assume that you were coordinating pretty closely with emergency services and Lawrence Transit, right? So were there any complaints from them about the traffic circles? Like, oh man, we can't get around anymore. Um, or were they, they generally okay with it? So that was um, pretty much, or not pretty much, that's exactly how we sized the uh, the temporary ones that are out there now is we looked at the, the turn movement that the, the fire department needed and got the circle as big as we could get while not, encumbering them at all okay um so in reading the, the comments i noticed that the stop sign at traffic circle thing was kind of a common thread yep and i realized yeah that would be really confusing <laughs> um i feel like people in lawrence aren't great at traffic circles to begin with and having contradictory signs is not helping matters is there a reason that the stop signs weren't just like i have a, like a black cloth draped over them or something to say like don't worry about this look at the circle um just out of curiosity I guess uh, no. There, there wasn't a reason. That's that's a, definitely something we should have considered hearing. That I, I, sure. So yeah. that's a great that's a great question. I guess we probably didn't give that a whole lot of thought because we we, we had made the decision at the beginning of the project that with all these these changes we were making, we were not going to change address stop stop patterns at this time. That's something that would be considered during the permanent phase of the project. So. Uh, because of kind of set that paradigm, uh, we really didn't give it a whole lot of thought before version three. Is that common in your work in other cities to not test the modification of stop signs, either putting new ones in, stopping the old ones? It, it, it seems like that would affect traffic flow. So is that in your bag of tricks, I guess? Not in mine, no. Okay. <laughs> okay. Interesting. So it seems like to me that there is a traffic control device that probably worked, but it's kind of hard to tell necessarily if it did or not. And we could install it because there's nothing really saying you can't based on city standards. And there is precedent elsewhere. 
but we don't know if it would be worth the money because we haven't fully studied them. So it seems like we're kind of in a conundrum here. So that gets to Charlie's point of wanting to keep the... Sorry, not you, Charlie. That's Charlie. Um, I wanted to keep the devices up longer because you want to test the configuration stuff. So I didn't realize that these were modifiable, configurable. Well, if So I guess that brings up another point. Sorry, can we table that? The first one was going to be talking about leaving them up until the permanent ones are installed. Dustin, could you please go through, um, I guess, the t technical issues around that? Sure. So just in general, it, they are a, a challenge for snow plowing in the winter, and um, but specifically the, the rubber speed humps. I mean, we, we've seen they have a, a lip on the leading edge that would definitely catch a snow plow, and we, ha we have great plow operators, but that, that would still be a, a concern, and we've heard that repeatedly from our operators, from the field supervising staff, so it, it it's always been understood that we would need to remove them for to facilitate plowing in the winter. Okay. What about the chokers? I, I got to be honest with you, I have not been through Olus Lawrence in a couple months. I don't know what these look like. I'm imagining like a giant planter box with a couple of jersey barriers, but I, I have no idea what they look like. So, Are those easy to see through the snow or not? Uh, they should be easy to see, but a, a similar kind of challenge of how to navigate a, a snow plow around them. So what we ended up with is a rubber curb and a, out from the permanent curb into the street and then uh, marked with vertical delineator posts. So the posts are, would be visible, but still it, navigating around it in order to plow um, on both sides of it or you know the parking areas for, for the residents that, that live along there. The parking area is usually plowed. I feel like in other cities I've lived in, parking areas are rarely plowed. You're kind of on your own for that one. Yeah. Unless it's a snow emergency route. But I'm, I'm not sure if there's a policy on it, but I, I think they do try to clean it if, if it, there's not a vehicle there. Okay. And when these are installed permanently, how will the snow plows navigate them? What Again, what I've, what I've heard from operators is the the permanent you know concrete speed humps, they're they're used to them, and obviously they're more durable. Those ones, right. But about the chokers, though? I mean, if if it's hard to geometrically get around them, should we be recommending them if snowplows can't get around them? That That's a good uh, question, and I, I think that that's definitely something we would have to consider, you know, as we would go to de design for the permanent, is if we need to, you know, revise the footprint of it so that it is more uh, navigable, if you will. Okay. So I guess at, at this juncture, it's it's predicted that there's going to be some issues with snowplows and them, but they do have the vertical delineator, so they do know where they are. Um, if a snowplow were to just go through, say, the center of the road, I, I'm i not getting a good visual of what these things look like. Are they on two sides of the road or just one? The chokers are just on, on one side, okay. kind of on the upstream end as, as you would enter the neighborhood from either 6th or 9th Street. Would it be possible then to just plow right through the middle of the street and just leave a pathway open, which would kind of be its own traffic calming almost. Um. <laughs> and that's the intent of the, the choker is to squeeze the, the travel lane down to hopefully slow traffic, but also give a visual cue that you're entering the neighborhood. But Okay. Um, and I guess that means that the last one is the traffic circle. So this looks like a stock picture from somewhere else. What do they look like in Olbus Lawrence? Are they also plastic bumpers or... Rubber bumpers that are hard to see. 
uh, under cover of snow? Or could a snow... I mean, if they're going to be installed permanently at some point, could a snowplow navigate around them? Yes, they 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 would definitely be okay. designed to, such that the permanent would be able to be navigated by a plow and uh, have visibility so that they wouldn't um, plow into it, I guess. Okay. So just to kind of make my thought process clear to the commission here. So I'm, I'm totally on board with removing the speed humps because I want to be able to use this in other neighborhoods and it would be a bummer to have them just chopped to bits um, by, by a snowplow who just can't see anything. I don't know if I'm on board necessarily with re- removing the traffic circles and the chokers, however, because it seems like they're going to have to get used to them eventually because it is a geometric challenge to get around them. And it seems like as long as they avoid the vertical stanchions, they should hopefully not damage anything. Um, and the reason I was talking about this whole leave it up versus not is that based on all the negative survey responses, there seem to be a lot of vindictive drivers out here who are going to be very excited to start going crazy once all this stuff is gone. <laughs> I don't know if that's really true, if it's just the pessimist in me. But that combined with the ability to continue to fiddle with angles and see if there's any other any options, maybe take away the stop signs from the traffic circles, it seems like there's more we could do with the resources that are already deployed. Even if we don't collect any data, it could just be anecdotal, I suppose. It, it seems like there may be value in leaving them up until we can permanently install stuff, except for the speed pumps. So I'm curious to hear what what the rest of you think. I know in our uh, last presentation on this, we talked about the you know the resources of the temporary um, barriers and the different devices that were available in the city, and that you know the need to you know move those to other locations. But is that likely to happen? Are those actually needed at this point in time? You know, as far as over this over the winter, and, and because I I agree that you know the the um, you know the uh, the rubber barriers maybe that's a that's a problem but but certainly the the planter the you know the half street or you know half lane diverters and the and the traffic circles it seems like um there there would be more time to you know to leave those in place and 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 provide some additional evaluation until we you know move to the next phase where we're going to deploy it in another neighborhood And hopefully, the you know moving towards the the permanent devices in Old West Lawrence at that you know as that as that happens, do we know what the schedule would be for the speed humps as far as making those permanent? What you know, how long that's going to take to to move to that to that stage? Uh, I would estimate it would be. May at the earliest before we would have, you know, a, a construction plans and a, a bid and a contractor and, and all of that in place. So I, I would say May at the very earliest. Mm-hmm. I know definitely for me driving through those, uh, along those streets with those speed humps, that seems to be very effective. And it's, you know, it, <laughs> removing it seems like going definitely going backwards and I hate to see that happen. Any other thoughts on that? I'm just curious if we're on the same page or there's a diversion of thought here. Divergence is the word.
don't know. I, I wonder how, how reusable are they? Is it feasible that those rubber speed humps would easily be just removed and reused in the next study? De definitely. That's, we're, but <laughs> so pretty I would unlikely. be disappointed if we, if we weren't able to remove them cleanly and reuse them. That, that's been the intent. So if, if those were left in place over a winter, you would expect them to be in a condition probably not usable, you know, after getting plowed and bumped. And, uh, I don't Again, know the, you know, I, I, <laughs> we don't know. I have all the faith in our operators, but I, I, I don't know that I would expect them to be unusable, but I would fear that they yeah. would have at least some damage. Yeah, I feel like there's no good way to not plow one of those things. Yeah. Like, even if you had a vertical delineator, what do you do? Just leave a hump of snow on the speed bump? Like, there's no good way to deal with it, I think. Um, so, anyway. Is it possible to, this may be a wild idea, but remove them so that plows can go through and then replace them after the plows have gone through? That, that would be a pretty uh, big ask of our, our field staff that I think I've already kind of burned most of my capital with. That's <laughs> <laughs> what I figured, yeah. Okay. Okay. What else do we have to go over? I think I had a couple other questions. So if, I guess if we can come to an agreement to leave selected elements in place over the winter, do our best to not plow them, and reconfigure stuff i guess how would additional study go would it just be anecdotal i'm assuming that at at this point um steven your tenure at this point is probably done so right i mean you've you've gone one more beyond what i think you were probably planning to do so is this something that city staff would be involved in or guided like I, I, i'm not seeing a clear path forward for additional modifications until the final installation so dustin what are your thoughts on that like how would that work if at all I guess I think it would be a challenge to, to collect additional data. There, there would be a hard cost associated with that. Um, but I think we could, as you say, anecdotally evaluate and you know continue working with the neighborhood team and and uh, potentially use their channels to to gather neighborhood feedback and 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 kind of use that level of of evaluation but yeah and, and hard data would would have a hard cost mm -hmm. um i guess that that's sort of a question for the neighborhood then too if if it for example would require people sitting out and doing traffic counts during certain times is that something that you guys are willing to volunteer if the consultant's scope has run out of this at this rate i mean okay <laughs> i was gonna say the amount of hours you've already invested this is probably a paltry ask so i figure i mean it will be colder however so you know it's not gonna be a wonderful time to sit outside so so it sounds like there's maybe a path forward by using citizen volunteer resources and ideally minimal city guidance because it does cost money to do stuff and there's a budget for this thing so we want to be mindful that there are other neighborhoods that will need to be a, allocating budget to eventually so um i was going to ask what is the opinion of old west lawrence traffic safety team around negative negative comments in the survey but as i was thinking about that kyle you answered it so sounds good um what else what else and one additional question about the the traffic circles and the recommendation about a study a citywide study for a policy 
what are the implications for leaving those traffic circles in, the temporary ones, removing the stop signs? Is are there implications without without a citywide policy since we have we do have precedent for that in other parts of the city? That that I don't I don't have a good answer for. Okay. Yeah. So it seems to me that there is a there's a full 100% list of all the things that could be installed to make traffic and out better. Then there's the list that's sort of a pared down version of it that is a compromise by trying to make the most impact with the most optimal use of resources while also still saving some for other neighborhoods in the future. Um, you know, with the full recognition that this particular pilot has taken longer than planned while also paving the way for additional pilots. So it's kind of been a, you know, there are good reasons that it took longer and more funds than it should have. But I think at this point, it it seems like it's probably time to start moving to other n- neighborhoods instead of going 100% in. I mean, so Dustin, I saw the spreadsheet that you had of, of, of costs for what's proposed at this point. And um, when we br- briefly talked, we kind of brainstormed that this doesn't necessarily have to be the end of all, right? Like, this isn't the amount of traffic control that will ever be installed. It's possible that as we move a couple years through and we're starting to learn lessons from other neighborhoods or even anecdotal evidence from here that it's like, you know what? We really did need those traffic circles after all. Those were really important and they were vital to the the functioning of this traffic control system. So I guess I would say that while it's probably not ideal to not get every single device installed, I would also say the book is probably not closed here um, if we decide to go through with this particular construction plan. So, but that's just my particular opinion. So any others? Do you have an estimate of what it would cost to install a traffic circle? $15,000. So the $15,000 estimate for the the circles, but that's with the caveat that they would be small enough to not require moving the curb lines. So in this situation, you would expect to also remove curb lines or... Is that unclear? I've I've done uh, preliminary um, kind of sketches and measurements and and think we can do something of a similar size to what the the temporary configuration is for the inner circle, and then also get a larger diameter apron, and then still have um, room to the to the curb line for for regular turning movements. And then the the larger vehicles could traverse the apron to, to navigate the intersections. So, so you believe you could do a fifteen thousand dollar traffic circle, permanent? Very preliminary. I I believe we can. Yes. I'm having a hard time with the <clears throat> traffic circles because what I hear you saying is. You're you're modifying a traffic control, and I get that because you're removing stop signs. But I guess I'm looking for, like, I don't know, historically those traffic, those stop signs are put in there at some point. I don't know that history, but I'm just guessing that 
a group from the neighborhood pushed hard and the city commission overruled the previous traffic safety commission that probably had an engineering study saying stop signs were not justified. So I feel like now we're in this catch where we can't remove stop signs because the city commission said to put them in there in overruling a traffic study that was done years ago. I'm just guessing that. I just know how the traffic safety commission got overruled a lot. So maybe you guys don't have that history. I don't know. I don't know if anybody in the neighborhood does, but it just feels like we're in a pickle of our own making here. And I, I'm looking for some sense from you, from your professional judgment. Are those stop signs even justified? Do we have to do a traffic study to figure that out? Or is this not an adequate like, way to address traffic calming and not create another barrier? Because I feel like this, the data is really compelling, but the data is contingent on putting permanently in place what has been temporarily put in place. And if we just say, well, let's take half of it, <laughs> I just, I'm not confident that we're going to get the same results. So I'm kind of in the, I don't want to get this wrong. The whole time we've been doing this, we've slowed it down to get it right. And now at the last hour, it feels like we're suddenly saying, well, let's only do half of it. And let's put it off for another year or two, maybe. So that concerns me. I'd rather slow the whole thing down. Get it right. Leave what's temporary, temporary. If there's a problem with snow plows, then let's figure that out and get it taken care of and then put the things back in place. But I'm, I'm less optimistic that we're going to come back around to this after we move on to another neighborhood. Well, in moving on to another neighborhood, what, what do we get? We have those same issues in another neighborhood, you know, in terms of... Yeah, we're not ready to go on because we don't know enough yet about how to do this right. So it's six traffic circles. You're looking at another... $90,000. It doesn't blow the whole budget for 2023. Well, what I'm hearing, though, is we got to have proof that the stop signs aren't justified. It, right? Am I like stop signs are a traffic control device. If we're going to take them out, we have to demonstrate that that's a justified decision. Correct. Yes. Right. And, and I agree with your, your earlier statement that my professional opinion is they were probably not warranted when they were put in, but somebody made the decision and, and got the stop signs put in. But, I guess that kind of goes back to the the other precedent traffic circles or roundabouts. I feel like we got to decide on a term. I thought these were roundabouts, by the way, but yeah. I don't know. Circles. Yeah. These are circles. Yeah. Rotary circles. Yeah. Roundabouts have the splitter island that oh. leads you into them. For some reason, I thought a traffic circle was like the really crazy ones like you have in Houston and D.C. and Philly where it's like you actually stop in the traffic circle and then keep going. Those are crazy. But anyway, that, be, that being the case, um, I'm going to say... So for those precedent things, I mean, say uh, the one that's 17th and is it Massachusetts? What's the one that's right behind D Dillon's? That um, that probably had stop signs at some point, right? There's no way that was a completely unsignalized intersection. So what would have precipitated removing those stop signs and putting a traffic circle in its place? Like, it, 
it sounds like from what we talked about not too long ago that a traffic study may or may not have happened, or it was before all of our time, so we don't really know. But there it sits. <laughs> well, so. I guess the the Dylan's. Um, I know that they did have a, a traffic study that included the traffic calming that went in uh, around the neighborhood. Okay. But uh, that was before my time, so I don't know any more detail than that. But. Okay. With all the data that's been collected as part of this study, what additional data would you need in order to determine the need for the stop signs versus a traffic circle? Uh, generally, it would be uh, much more focused on the individual intersections, traffic volumes in all directions, mm -hmm. um, any crash history, um, site distance issues. So the traffic volumes that we have right now are just for the entire corridor, or you know, so all of Main Street or whichever street we're talking about, not not at the particular intersection. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, and, and they're, they're like blocks, so we don't you know, we don't have where the circles are. We don't we don't have all four adjacent blocks. We didn't collect every block in the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I, and I also want to just kind of maybe I, I over I overstated engineering study. Um, uh, I what I think what's most important here is a, a device of that nature where you are changing traffic control. I think really should be backed by a city policy, however you arrive at that policy. Um, it, it could be as simple as you know get, getting a hold of five peer cities that might have a traffic calming policy. What's your policy on? The use of traffic circles. I don't think it's important for the city to establish a policy for that type of device because you're establishing precedent. Um, you know, a lot of these, a lot of these intersections that we're looking at, you know, that the entering traffic is, you know, under eight under eight hundred vehicles a day. Um, and so, I'm, having spent thirty years with the state, I, I know I know the importance of, you know, not being careful about setting precedent, you know, making an exception for this location because, well, what about this location? And so, you know, as this moves into different neighborhoods um, over time, um, I just, I, I think we just, the more policy the city can have that drives these decisions, the better. So I'm seeing a policy like this probably fitting somewhere in the engineering design standards, which cover everything from stormwater control, street width, typical cross-section, curb-to-curb, all that jazz. Um, it's probably eventually going to include crossing, what are we calling it? Crossing thresholds. Um, where to put on our crossings. Obviously, we're not there yet. I think it's still being actively worked out where this is going to live. But it, it seems like roundabouts will probably go here too, right, for intersection treatments, which leads me to a point of, Applying one standard across the whole city has led us to interesting discussions in the past where it turns out that context sensitivity does matter sometime. So trying to apply the collector street standard to East 19th Street, for example, was going to lead to a really wide street that was probably oversized for what it needed to be. And it, it, it took basically, you know, going against what our standard said, like, well, it's this kind of road and it's got this kind of amount of traffic on it. So it's got to be this kind of with the street like, yeah, but you look at what's around it and it's it's way too wide for what it's doing. There's no reason for this. So one of our, our topics that we've come up with a couple of times is, you know, context sensitivity. And I mean, that can be built into a policy, but I mean, it's also, you know, if we had something that 
that said that okay well if you have 800 ADT on a street like this then you should get one but then if you go to, old, to far far west Lawrence that is way more auto oriented then you're going to have traffic circles on every street um, so it seems like you know at this point we have a, enough of a study showing their effectiveness it's like well I mean what more data do you need to show that they work um, even with or without stop signs um, that we need to then apply to the rest of the city because a lot of what we're doing here is kind of breaking new ground anyway right I mean Looking at chokers, which haven't really been used, you know, a lot throughout the city. Speed humps, yeah, I think we have some kind of standard for that. But even things like the median barriers, which are pretty radical, there wasn't a standard for that. So, like, if if hypothetically people actually were okay with those and wanted those to be installed as the final um, plan, would we probably need to have a policy for that, too? Because we don't have any precedent on installing those and they would change traffic patterns. Um, I mean, at least we've seen circles so I don't know that's just my my personal thoughts are that it it seems like we have enough data to pull it off at this point and and if we needed to put backstop signs we always could you know just stick them right back there in the ground but we've been doing a lot of piloting already so may as well just keep the experimentation going I guess I don't know I was just gonna I, you make a good point about the context sensitive stuff and um, you know when it comes to the circles and again, I'm, you know, I'm looking ahead, setting precedent, but this neighborhood is unique in that. So in two, three years, when it's like, well, what, you know, they got one, why don't we get one? Well, Old West Lawrence is unique. Um, it's on a grid and it's just, it's location, you know, this ad nauseum, the location in the city is just, it invites cut through traffic. And, um, and so it's a real challenge. So you could kind of add that caveat. Well, this, this is that exception we made for them just because of, the unique situation of Old West Lawrence, the neighborhood in the street system in the city. So, when those decisions in other neighborhoods should be made in the context of the neighborhood traffic management plan and another pilot study or another study, just hopefully more streamlined than this, you know, now that we've gone through the, you know, the, the steps to try to get that process right, that those decisions would be made at that point for that neighborhood rather than just ad hoc, um, you know, putting in a traffic circle because someone asked for it. You know, we're looking at neighborhoods rather than, you know, in the old days of the Traffic Safety Commission and putting in traffic calming, you know, just evaluating each individual request. Now we're doing it, trying to do it more systematically. And I think wouldn't get into that or shouldn't get into that that kind of uh, situation where they're just being requested one by one uh, in a particular situation. I also think that a policy isn't fully unwarranted eventually, um, but it seems like we're maybe a little bit early on. And like you said, it is a pretty unique neighborhood. And I feel like, you know, basing a roundabout policy on Old West Lawrence would be like, basing a national zoning code off of New York, like it's pretty different, you know, there's not, there's not, this may not necessarily apply to other parts of the city, but like, even with our own built environment, there was a lot of stuff that's just done like, as you will. Right. And, and if it killed somebody, we probably were like, let's not do that again. But if it worked good enough, then maybe it eventually got adapted into a code. Maybe it didn't make the final cut of the use code. Right. But we have a lot of stuff throughout town that was originally just built because that's just what people built. And then the zoning code was kind of built around it to make it make sense for everybody. Um, 
where it didn't conform with modern societal standards and desires, those uses were not conforming. And we kind of have those with our, our roads as well. I mean, there are collective streets that are not nearly as wide as our standards say they should be. And, you know, probably some turn radii that are too wide. So, I mean, it just kind of seems like it's a little bit early for a pu policy, but we do have enough to know that they generally work in other neighborhoods. And that if we took them out, then you would have a straight shot down 8th Street that um, could be taken advantage of, I suppose. And 7th, too. 7th. I think it might be a good time for uh, Kyle wanted to make oh, a yeah. point. Well, sure. I might have lost lost all of my comment there, but the, the, the neighborhood uh, generally does favor the stop signs, so I don't know that we would want to start yanking out stop signs again without continued dialogue. Um, and it might be a good opportunity to test that, leave them in, A-B test, like, all right, we're going to leave, uh, you know, we're going to drape or yank the stop signs for a week or two here or there. And Charlie made the uh, comment that in other cities, small traffic calming circles mm -hmm. do have stop signs. Um, so these aren't roundabouts. These are small traffic calming circles. Um, and, but I do think that our signage and consistency do need to improve so that people aren't confused. Why is this one a four-way stop and has a small traffic calming circle? This one's only two, you know, so we need to continue to have a dialogue on this topic anyway. Mm. Okay. So I'm pretty sure the policy here in Lawrence is once you put a traffic circle in, you do not get stop signs also. Well, we had a case, uh, an exception was made um, to accommodate uh, a family with a child that was uh, blind and was navigating to school. And we had, gave it a one-year extension after a circle was put in in university place. I'm pretty clear, like, what we were told then was you don't get both. So... I'd like to see, like, look at the, if it's six intersections, let's take a look at all of them, see if they meet warrants to have stop signs. If they don't, then the question is, do you want a circle or do you want to keep with the stop signs? Knowing that the stop signs may not actually be justified, but since they're already there, you're probably going to be safe to keep them. Or get rid of them. Put in the circles. So I think one of the biggest complaints we've heard regarding the stop sign configuration in our neighborhood, um, even before this project, but kind of hodgepodge together. Um, like we said, somebody probably came before project mission and said they would want stop sign. Uh, there's a lot of confusion even before this pilot about what to do at our intersections because. There are some family plots, right? so that problem is huge. Mm -hmm. And sometimes a big truck can be sitting, you know, in an inopportune spot, so you don't see the stop sign until you pass that blockage, and all of a sudden you got whoops. I mean, I almost did that a couple of weeks ago because there just happens to be a big truck parked in a weird spot. Mm. So. Yeah, it's a shame we're just now talking about the stop signs in your neighborhood. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty sure from things I've heard over the years that those stop signs were the result of a lot of hard work by your neighborhood. 
And you had to get the vote of the city commission because the traffic commission would basically follow the script of whatever the city engineer was telling them. And if it didn't, you know, meet, if the neighborhood wasn't happy with the city engineer's take and the commission's traffic commission's take on it, the process was appeal to the city commission and then it's just a political choice. And um, I think what you ended up with is this, a very kind of incoherent uh, approach to street signs, you know, stop signs in your neighborhood. And so I don't know, this is going to slow it down even more, but how do we better understand the appropriateness of the stop signs in the neighborhood and whether it's uh, reasonable to change that, which might involve replacing them with circles or just accepting it. I'm not sure it seemed like stop signs were ruled out as a, as an option. No, that would make sense if it was, because literally these are like two different things. Yeah. One's uh, traffic calming and one's traffic control. And that's a technical distinction, but it's one that, you know, we're accustomed to hearing about. And I think bringing up this idea that this involves both, you know, you're, we probably should have thought about that earlier on, you know. And, and so the neighbors, it's a distinction without a difference. I can tell you mm -hmm. that because the technicality is lost on average people like us. No, you're right. Um, but and and it's lost on us, but definitely lost on everybody else. So we got a lot of suggestions. Why not speed on some stop signs? That's what's up. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know. It's worth thinking. And again, it's really complicated in our specific situation. The uh, Lawrence, by the way, calls, there's a, fly, a Lawrence flyer on these kind of circles. They're called neighborhood traffic control circles. And so I think there was, if not a policy of practice, that you, you, one of you might want to Google it while you're sitting there, because there's, there's a drawing on um, But it's complicated in our neighborhood with what we've got now, because these circles are very small. And on their own, I'm thinking of the one near, near where my house is, without stop signs, not sure speed wouldn't go right back up uh, as, as badly as stop signs are observed in months. So it, it would take some studying before they, they would take it out. Yeah, I would not be comfortable uh, removing the stop signs with, I hope I'm not speaking out of turn here, but okay. Uh, I, I, as a traffic engineer, I would not be comfortable removing the stop signs uh, while just what's out there today is left in place. I wouldn't. I wouldn't consider changing the stop pattern until something more permanent is installed. A full-size traffic circle with apron, and because that's a good point. I mean, yeah, there's not a whole lot of deflection out there now with, with what's out there. So you're saying that they're basically just not not visible enough that you would trust them to do their job as the temporary versions, but the full version would be okay. Yeah, the full version would would, would be would would be visually much larger. We have the truck apron. But you know, the truck aprons typically uh, like a red, mm -hmm. so people would would it would it would deflect traffic around it, and and slow them down. Um, but the existing one, again, we just we didn't have the materials to build a full size traffic circle. We wanted to get something down. Um, but um, yeah, that's that's just that's my opinion as a traffic engineer. Okay, so. I 
feel like we're we're getting close to a couple of conclusions, but there's still a few things we may need to hammer out before motion. The first one, it seems like in terms of taking stuff away or leaving it there during the winter before the full thing is installed, would you say we're generally in agreement that speed humps have got to go because they're they're going to get wrecked? But the circles and chokers would be we should say that they should stay. Okay. Then there's the other part of doing additional modifications. It will not be consultant assisted. It will be city guided, maybe if that's possible. Um, and and citizen driven, I suppose, in terms of actually getting the counts done. If that's something that that'll be of interest. That that's kind of where I'm leaning. Are we on the same ish page, or should we tweak that a little bit more? I guess I'm not not clear on really why additional study is needed. I mean, we have a we have a plan, and part of the plan part of the issue with the plan is that there not apparently is, will not be enough funding to put those all in place. So I guess additional study would be how to prioritize those locations to get the permanent installations in. So right, like stop signs or not? Yeah, that's right. what I'm thinking. Yeah. Um, yeah. Charlie, could you speak more to what you were thinking about in terms of adjusting angles and stuff on the chokers? And I forget exactly what you were talking about, but there's some sort of modifications that you could do, right? Yeah, two, two, a couple things. Um, back on the traffic calming circle or control circle, context is very important. These are very, very small intersections the geometry is such that you can only do so much without getting into uh, really taking a lot of yard and expending a lot of of money um, uh, unwisely Um, i think definitionally these are slightly different than what we're used to we i work for you know ham and so mining and construction and we've built them 10 foot diameter and we've built them 120 foot in diameter across you know the midwest so very familiar with them they're very good at moving traffic um, and we have a pedestrian concern in our neighborhood so part of our goals was to increase safety and i've walked around uh traffic circles roundabouts around the country and uh, in, in other countries they're great at moving cars you better be able to look both ways and you better not have any disabilities we don't want to create that in our neighborhood the stop signs actually work quite well if we can get the visual aspect and that psychoperceptive aspect to it. Maybe it involves the stop signs being in the traffic circle. And I don't even want to say traffic circle. I'm going to say traffic control monument is more what we have. So just offering that up. Um, so um, in terms of the geometry on the on the chokers, um, so we do want to maintain that safe 20-foot width for emergency vehicles to, to get in. However, if you're measuring that with parked cars on both sides, um, it eliminates much of a choker. However, since the um, uh, delineators are sacrificial, and um, any, you know, nearly anything can get over them, maybe, maybe not something small, but uh, um, I think that we could get more horizontal movement, and it's been done in other cities. You still use a delineator. It's very sacrificial. Anything can just plow over it but it moves the traffic over and slows it down and also gives you that opportunity to put a very safe properly designed sign on it um, that says welcome to the neighborhood please drive slow 
we have walkers, etc. Um, so I think that a little more experimentation, very cheap. We're very happy. I'll get out there with a Makita. We can get them moved. I'll do it. Um, and we will volunteer. I will volunteer to help on, on watching traffic. And I, we have a great team and we have other dog walkers and folks that are very, very uh, uh, active and, and, and interested in this. In terms of the circle, it, it, it could be such that uh, we, we can enlarge it maybe a little bit and keep those for quite some time to further uh, extend the cash flows uh, and the ROI on the project. Uh, we could experiment with different signage. Um, yeah, there could be even something of a painted crosswalk in, in front of them before as you approach the combination, you know, in terms of the visual might, might um, do quite a bit. So um, those were my thoughts. I don't know if I completely answered the question. Yeah, so it sounds like with the chokers, you are interested in going, maybe going a little bit more uh, more aggressive, I guess. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I would I would maybe disagree a little bit on the distinction between the circles and the stop signs. Um, as somebody who's also traveled around a lot, there are not a lot of stop signs in other countries that have far lower traffic deaths than than we do. So something is definitely different about our approach, and it's it's not just our highways; it's where people are walking, which is not usually the highways. So I would say there's probably good reason that places like the Netherlands and Austria don't have a ton of stop signs. They tend to kind of make people angry as they're driving. You see a lot of people don't come to a full stop. You see a lot of people really just focusing like, all right, the perfunctory, got to stop, got to go, without really like paying attention to what's going on. And eight stops in a row is particularly annoying. And I feel like a lot of the early suggestions I saw that were in opposition to version one were like, just put stop signs everywhere. Like, Tell me you haven't been out of the country without telling me, right? Like, that's not how people do it in countries that know what they're doing. And I, I also realize that traffic circles also aren't very common in low-speed neighborhoods in places like the Netherlands and England. That being said, I'm looking at one right now. I just zoomed in on the, on the easiest four-way intersection I could find in a suburb outside of Amsterdam. There's a little tiny traffic circle right there with, with a silly little light <laughs> and no stop signs whatsoever. Stop signs are very rare in other countries because... You're usually going slow enough on traffic-calmed roads that you just look and you don't do anything stupid because you know they don't have a stop sign either. So it's, it's much more of a, obviously, we don't train our drivers that way, right? So I wouldn't advocate going that way overnight. That being said, I mean, if the traffic circles work in other very walkable neighborhoods like University Place and Barker, why not all the starts, right? I mean, at least it would make it a lot harder to straight shot down a, You'd have to at least slalom them a little bit to actually get through the sure. circles. And then... Drivers may not be so annoyed at the amount of stop signs because hey, you can still get through without actually stopping, but you do have to slow down, which is important. And that may be enough to d deter some drivers who just hate going slow. So just my personal thoughts. Oh, that's very, very, very good point. And, and having been in the ones in Amsterdam and Rotterdam several times, they're, they're – uh, design of their pedestrian ways and bike ways are much more comprehensive. Yeah. And so you actually know where to go, whereas we do not have that. So no. point sure. well taken, but much more comprehensive design. You're right. Yeah, we have a long way to go. <laughs> okay. So I just want to be clear. What I'm hearing you say is put in a circle and there are no stop signs. Where the circles are, because it's confusing. I mean, but then I'm hearing, the, I'm hearing the neighborhood say, wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> so I think we need to spend some more time on this. Like, if circles mean no stop signs, and if the neighborhood wants stop signs, then I'm here. That, I, I would assume that means you don't want circles. Like, it would be conflicted for sure. Yeah. So we would want to spend time on it. Yeah. So then the staff proposal to move forward and 
to not do any circles at all is we're advocating to keep all the devices in place until they're replaced, including the traffic circles. So we keep temporary devices until safe point they whether they have stop signs or not. We right. want to do whatever works with the policy. There's no <laughs> so if so if they so you know, from a cash flow standpoint if you want to if you can find Personally, I'm okay with that. It's a pilot. Things are still kind of weird. Um, I do think that when things become permanent and concrete, that we should probably conform to what people are used to and what they learn when they're taking their driver's ed. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm fine with leaving them up up in the meantime especially if there's going to be some experimentation if city is okay with that, having you know occasional resources dedicated to just making sure that you know no one's going too crazy by removing all stop signs in the neighborhood or you know putting a giant concrete ball in the middle of the street or something right so that would be my recommendation and do we miss anything oh the actual stuff to install so i think at this point because we don't have a really good read on the traffic circles, I feel comfortable leaving them off of the final cost estimate, but I think we should maybe readdress this because it sounds like they do work in a way. We just don't really know for sure how they work because they have stop signs on them, which is weird. So, um, I mean, I would personally advocate for approving the cost estimate as is, or I guess the cost plan as is, but with the hope that in a couple of months after the winter and there's been some citizen led modifications and anecdotal evidence, that we maybe look at again and see, like, okay, are they worth keeping in there, or could we get rid of them and just keep the stop signs? I'm curious about how the circle and the stop signs are actually working. I'm getting the sense that you guys are hearing that as you're on the ground, you're seeing that it actually has improved compliance for stop signs. Is that fair? It is slow. It is creative slowing. And I think that is a combination of the historical stop signs have been. I kind of gave this example the other night. You know, Olivos Lawrence has been around for over a century. Yeah, we're, we're talking a growing neighborhood of streets. And when you look at how those stop signs came about, so it has created pause. Mm -hmm. And so it, it's caused that to come about. And so therefore, everybody stops, which is a blessing right now because that's what we're seeing. Now, is that going to be a longitudinal type thing that will continue on we'll know if we pull stop signs out of course not everyone would then know but at that point you go back to your pedestrian safety so you're right what we're seeing right now is what we would like to see but it's also the first introduction of it yeah. we haven't done it in a great area we haven't done it in a I can just tell you from spending a lot of time standing at an intersection wanting to stop sign prior to this uh, 
it's traffic off the pilot. Stop signs, in my opinion, in Old West Lawrence, even the people who don't live in Old West Lawrence, they are merely a suggestion. And they are rarely following to the law. I mean, whether there's a dog walker, it could be someone just driving through it, it can be all manner of ignoring it. And we've been told that it, the police are not going to patrol it. It's not, it's, it's a very low priority, of course, when you've got a city of our size and other things, other crime or, or things to detect. They're not gonna sit in, and they sit stops. And so what's been so fantastic about the traffic circles or what you know, whatever the the best way to describe them is that they do, as you all described, they cause whether they're a resident or a student trying to cut through, they absolutely have to pause and traverse it. So yes, having a stop sign has made it even more pause for thought if you're going to, to go left. But you can either, you have to, you, you, you stop and you assess how am I not endanger myself or my automobile if there's someone else in the circle, then people traverse it like a traffic circle, they go around it. And we have a pickup truck, full-size truck that can go around it without hitting a curve or hitting the circle. So it's a very, I mean, and that's any number of the intersections. I'm specifically speaking about seven and in the end. Um, but if there's nobody in the circle, there's no other car around, people pause and they take a left in front. So it's, it has brought so much harmony to the street and it really has not to be dramatic, but it has really removed a lot of fear. It's removed people driving out of control. It's removed people texting while they drive. Like it has not been uncommon to be walking a dog at night and see a hand on a steering wheel and the other one holding the phone, which we all see, but when you see it in a residential neighborhood where there's cars parked on both sides of the street, dog walkers at night, et cetera, it, it's very disconcerting. So these traffic circles, following devices, they're fantastic. And I came closer to the summary. I see them as looking at this data. My concern about removing them is that you are removing a piece of an entire puzzle. None of these things are acting alone. They are all, they work in concert to slow people down, whether you live in the neighborhood or whether you're trying to cut through. And, um, and they work. I mean, the data shows it. The anecdotal evidence, people living in the neighborhood, sure, a little bit of annoyance, but you know what? Rules are annoying. Renewing your driver's license is but we follow. So I applaud your pause and questioning about like that we don't have all the information. Um, and I, I just I think that I, I think you're right. We just we have to look a little further, and our community is more than happy to take on the the legwork because we recognize that the official finite amount of money. Uh, I'm I'm inclined to think there's got to be something else we can call these besides traffic circles. <laughs> yes. And I think it was a traffic control monument, and I immediately wrote that down. Yeah. Yes. Well, we can't we can't make we can't we can't make it up. But there's something I think at a is it our, our last meeting of the meeting before, and it was. I can't remember the term, but it, 
<clears throat> it was some sort of diverter, but it didn't like block the entire intersection. And it was something about like it prevents someone from cutting too deep into a left turn. And I forgot the term for it, but it was, yeah, I, I looked it up and it was intriguing because I see this all the time. People will take a left turn and they'll just, you know, if there's a car there, they would have not been able to do it, but they'll, they'll cut right into it. And it's, there's a term for this um, sort of diverter and it's actually in the intersection and it precludes someone from cutting too tight. And I don't know if, what that is, but what I'm hearing is you guys believe the combination of the circle and the stop stop sign is what's achieving the effect, the desired effect. And if we're recognizing that, you know, in some ways this doesn't comply with engineering standards, is there a way to like leave the stop signs alone, put in something that's not a circle, but is some sort of diverter that does enough to achieve the same impact. And maybe we need to figure out what that is. Kyle, I heard you say that you were thinking of maybe taking some of the stop signs, I guess, decommissioning a couple of them maybe over the winter as part of the continual modification. I feel like that'd be really interesting to then start to see side-by-side data of how does a traffic circle perform on its own and how does it perform with the stop sign? And if there's a severe difference, then that would be a much better way to decide what to do with these things, I think. I agree. I mean, I'd like to see what, what does that look like because then you can isolate, like, what, are, you know, which features of this thing are causing, you know, this much reduction in volume or speed or whatever. So. Yeah. We can't compare that to this data, though, because we've got speed bumps in. We do that with speed bumps out. I think it has to be done yeah. in isolation. Exactly. You know, isolated. One variable at a time. Right. That's yeah, and you probably aren't going to be collecting speed data. You're probably just going to have to do traffic counts on your own. Yeah, we'd have to just yeah. be out there. But your counts are going to change with bumps coming out. But we yeah. would do it. That's true. Oh, yeah. We did have. I saw that before. <laughs> All right, y'all. I think I'm going to do my best to make a motion here. <laughs> Good luck. Good luck. All right. Hold up. Maybe talk amongst yourselves for a sec. I'm going to bullet point it to make sure I got this covered. So, so we're approving version three. We are, well, not, not really, though, because we don't know about the traffic circles yet. We are asking for temp devices to be left in place, except speed humps. Additional testing over winter with OWL leading occasional MSO guidance. Let's focus on stop signs versus circles and various combinations, plus choker angles. Am I missing anything? Called center line hardening. Hardening, yes, yeah, right. It's center, uh, really center line hardening. <laughs> and yep. that's it. And it prevents deep cuts and turns. All right. I think I got it. Okay. I would motion that we that we that we uh, recommend staff leave the temporary traffic control devices in place except for the speed humps, which should be removed for the winter. We recommend that that oldest Lawrence traffic safety team be allowed to do additional anecdotal testing under the guidance of MSO over the winter to, to ascertain the effects of modifications to existing 
elements. And that, you know, if, if staff could bring this back to us in two or three months or so, once you guys have been able to make some conclusions, then we can see what the final budget looks like. But, but at this point, we do recommend that what has been proposed for final installation, at least at a minimum, should stand. It's a horribly rambling motion, but hopefully we all got the gist of that, right? I can repackage it if you need. Okay. Any seconds? And I guess before we go on, is that, the, is that guidance? Is there anything that's a total full stop at this point? Did we just cr cross a red line? Because I know this is maybe not how you anticipated this going, but... Um, I, I would say I still... Um, well, I know I personally would not be the one approving to to uh, leave the devices over the winter, so I, I'm not sure how we can include that desire. Is there a way that if they are damaged due to snowfall and bad snow plowing that we may have to kind of rethink it? Say, like, okay, clearly this isn't as easy as we thought it was, so we may actually have to remove these to make sure that they don't get hurt on the next snowstorm. Can we do it through the first snowstorm at least? <laughs> just see if it's if it's doable. I mean, it's not like we're Buffalo, so hopefully with just a couple of inches each year, it shouldn't be a huge lift. But and I recognize that these are assets and investments that the city has made that we're hoping to use elsewhere. So I can see why you'd be hesitant to leave them out to the elements and the trucks that could damage them. But I do think that it would be important to kind of continue the progress that has been made and continue to make tweaks on it. So it's... You know, it's it's with that recognition of the risk of keeping them out that I I still would prefer to see them go forward. You guys okay with adding a bit of a clause like if after the first store snowstorm it's just not working, then we cut our losses and remove them? Or is that too specific? What can they do in other neighborhoods with speed bumps? So the, the, sorry, the permanent speed bumps are fine because they don't have a lip, but the rubber ones very much have a lip, which is probably why they're more effective too, because boom, like they're a huge bump. Um, so the way that a snowplow would go down, it would just completely, you know, conk it off essentially. So they're much more vulnerable to things that are flush with the road surface, whereas the ones that are in place permanently are actually pretty smooth. So um, it's not like the ones you find in. Um, like big box store parking lots, but those are you, you wouldn't want to plow over those. I think you <laughs> gnarly. Full stop. Yeah. I wonder if we need to hear the motion again. Yeah. <laughs> Put it in there. We recommend leaving the circles. Choker to the city engineer's discretion. I mean, I feel like it's it's kind of important that these work in their permanent form in a snowstorm too, right? I mean, if yeah. if the it sounds like it's more of an issue of navigating around rather than lifting the blade up in time. And I feel like if they're going to be here eventually. You're going to have to learn to live with them because I mean, the permanent ones will damage your blade. So it's like this is a practice run for the snowplows to make sure that they don't screw up. And then if we lose a device or two, it's like, all right, well, that was a bummer, but let's rip them out and make sure it doesn't happen again and teach yeah. snowplows how to drive again. 
So I think if we can maybe recess after the first snowstorm, that would be helpful to see. Did, did we make the right decision or were we a little bit too hasty? <laughs> um, I want to believe this is the right decision, but I also want to be able to compromise in the face of new data. So, all right, I'm, go I'm going to go for the motion again. The I would make a motion that we that staff leave the temporary devices in place, but not the speed humps, only the circles and the chokers. We reassess the condition of them after the first snowstorm, and additional testing should be done over the winter, largely driven by Old West Lawrence with guidance and sort of approval from MSO, especially focusing on extensions of chokers and uh, stop sign versus circle combinations. And then in a few months, we'll reassess. I second. Okay. Let's do it. Uh, Christina, can you please call roll? Did you get all that or do you want me to reiterate anything? It was a really long motion. Okay. <laughs> Damon Beltuska? Yes. Brian Reyes is absent. Laura Bennett? Yes. Will Sharp? Yes. Pat Collette? Yes. Charlie Bryan? Yes. Nick Kuzmiak? Yes. And Commissioner Payton? Yes. Motion carries. I realize this was kind of a compromise between a whole bunch of stuff, but I'm hoping that we've kind of navigated it correctly. It's one of those things where, you know, we always do the best with the data that we have and the perspective that we have. And the good thing is we get to reevaluate occasionally. So hopefully in a few months, we'll see if we were correct or not. And, um, and we'll, we'll talk next steps. So in the meantime, very glad to see all the, all the participation from Old West Lawrence. Dustin, thank you a ton for continuing to push this thing forward. This has been a, a really useful exercise for that's going to be able to be used for other neighborhoods. So the fact that you all went through it first means that others will benefit from this. So, all right. Um, would anybody like a quick break before we move into number two? Cause that was a, a long one. Yes. Break. Yep. Let's do it. All right. Come back at eight. Try to make it relatively quick. Thank you. This one's none of your, another one of yours, right? We are uh, teaming up on it, but I did want to take an opportunity to give a, an official introduction to Omar Mali. He's an, an, an engineer that joined us recently, and oh. he's officially the project manager on this project. But oh. again, Welcome. I wanted to introduce you to the new face and not, not have him just come up here cold. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Well, good evening. As uh, thank you, Dustin. Omar Mali, project engineer, MSO. Um, I'm the project manager for uh, the this project that's going to be addressed in this agenda item. The project is reconstruction of 11th Street from Indiana Street to Ohio, and the Louisiana Street uh, from 11th Street to 12th Street. Um, the project. Those two street segments are in necessary to for infrastructure upgrades. The existing pavement is in bad condition. The uh, stormwater is creating a lot of uh, runoff down the hill. Um, there's limited, um, limited bike and pedestrian uh, facilities in that area. So um, as per the city 
um, capital improvement plan. This project, the reconstruction of those two street segments are on construction for construction in 2023. Uh, the improvement for this project will include total street reconstruction, stormwater and sanitary sewer rehabilitation, waterline replacement, transit amenities, and bike and pedestrian facilities. Let me move to this. Oh, Omar, share your screen like you're in a Zoom meeting. Okay. Got it. Awesome. <clears throat> All right, so um, in more details, we have those two street segments. Just a heads up, you have the plan is rotated 90 degrees clockwise, so the north is pointing to your right. Uh, we have Louisiana Street from 11th Street to 12th Street, and we have 11th Street going from all the way from Indiana to Ohio. So for um, the segment um, of Louisiana Street, the improvement will include new concrete pavement, storm sewer, bike and pedestrian improvements. The pedestrian improvement includes a reconstruction of the sidewalk on the east side of that street. And the bike improvement, this street is already on a bike lane, uh, bikeway, and has a bike lane, so the improvement will include uh, pavement marking and signage as per code. The other segment, the 11th Street segment, um, is a street that on the 2040 growth tier for future bikeway. The street section, uh, the construction of that street section will be similar to what was been constructed on the west side of 11th Street. So that's uh, one lane in each direction and improved bike facilities on, and sidewalks. It's worth mentioning, I want to mention that the recently constructed west side of 11th Street has uh, a Sherrows for both east and west bounds of 11th Street. Also, Mississippi Street has a Sherrows. The improvement for this section, the 11th Street, has uh, will include new concrete pavement, storm and sanitary sewer improvement, and bike and pedestrian improvement. Related to the bike and pedestrian improvement on this segment, this street, 11th Street, this is the reason for this agenda, basically. Um, the city and the design consultant, PEC, have developed a conceptual design for the project. The team has developed three conceptual design options for the improvement for pedestrian uh, bike facilities. Complete street checklist were performed for all options. So we have three options. We have Jason, uh, the team lead of Municipal Transportation Division from PEC. He will go over those three options in more details. And he will go over our recommended option based on our evaluation and engineering judgment. And we are requesting a recommendation from the commission on the bicycle and pedestrian facilities for the project and specifically for 11th Street to move forward with design process so we could have some uh, facilities implemented and on, on the field uh, in 2023. I'll turn it down to Jason. Good evening, everybody. 
My name is Jason Fundus. I'm with PEC. I'm the project manager for this project uh, on the PEC front. So as Omar mentioned, um, this project is to look at the uh, conceptual uh, design for uh, Louisiana Street from 12th to 11th, as well as 11th Street from Indiana down to Tennessee. We've come up with three different options that we're looking at currently um, that it, uh, has been in the agenda item for you guys. This first option that we're looking at, um, the uh, 11th, well, I guess I'll start with a little Louisiana Street. All the options are the same. We'll be matching the existing uh, bicycle facilities that are south of 12th Street, which is a buffered bike lane for southbound and then a Sharrow for northbound. 11th Street is the options there between the bicycle facilities and pedestrian facilities and our recommended alternative one here. We are showing on the west leg just Sharrows both uphill from Indiana east towards Louisiana and then a Sharrow downhill west from Louisiana to Indiana. And as we move east, we're looking at adding a buffered bike lane for the uphill climbing lane from Tennessee all the way up to Louisiana, and then just Sharrow's downhill going eastbound from Louisiana to Tennessee. With this, the on-street parking that is in that area would be removed, but this would give you uh, availability mm. to add sidewalks on both the north and south side of 11th Street, connecting the sidewalks all the way from uh, Ohio all the way down to Indiana into the current crosswalks that are there. Um, one thing I wanted to mention with this is with this option and the recommended alternative one, this aligns all the vehicle paths, both at Tennessee, um, that is there now. Currently, it is a three-lane section with a left turn lane that is uh, um, on the east side of uh, Tennessee, and then also matching the uh, current geometry at 11th and Indiana as well on the west end. <laughs> We'll go ahead and move down to option 1A. The difference here is we're looking at adding a bike lane, climbing bike lane, buffered bike lane for eastbound from Indiana to Louisiana. With this option, we have to eliminate the sidewalk from on the south side of 11th Street from Louisiana to Indiana because of the right-of-way constraints as well as um, the, the uh, vertical constraints that would be there in that area. We would already be uh, probably require twice as much right-of-way acquisition in that area to add this climbing lane rather than just a sidewalk that we proposed in the alternative one. But also um, the retaining wall that would probably be needed there would be much taller, including a protective rail on top for fall protection. And um, the amount of rock excavation that would be required in that hill is also uh, be quite extensive in there. And as you can see, we're already starting to get pretty close to the uh, facility that is there on the southeast corner of Indiana in 11th Street. Sorry, do you mean the southwest? Oh, sorry, southeast corner. Never mind, continue. <laughs> I'll get used to it. Um, the... Um, with this option here, the uh, hindrance to the pedestrian traffic would probably make a huge impact there because of eliminating that sidewalk in that area. Uh, one thing that was completed with this concept study was a traffic count for both vehicles, pedestrians, and bicyclists at 11th and Louisiana. With that, we were seeing roughly between 1,700 pedestrians at that intersection in a two-day count, whereas we were only seeing about 20 bicycles in a two-day count. 
So the pedestrian traffic quite heavily outweighs the bicycle traffic, um, at least at that intersection. Jason, did you see pedestrians using the sidewalk or also like desire paths on the south side of 11th Street? Right now, the grass path is well beaten. So you can see that it is already getting a heavy foot traffic in that area, um, which is one reason why we wanted the recommended option to be looking at adding that sidewalk there for those pedestrians to safely travel down that hill. So on Google Street View, it looks like there's a tree line that hits once you hit that one driveway and that there isn't really any room for pedestrians to walk that's even close to the street. So Correct. So then it's automatically pushing them out into the street to oncoming traffic at that point. Okay. Okay. And there's not really much of a sidewalk on the south side either, right? I mean, there's that path from the parking lot and that's it. Correct. Okay. Mm. Good to know. Um, I will go ahead and jump down into option 1B. This is what we looked at adding a shared use path on the south side. So with the shared use path, we've eliminated all the climbing lanes and bikeways, uh, the buffered bike lanes along 11th Street, just adding a shared use path on the south side. Um, We chose the south side due to the fact that there's already a shared use path further east that ends at Kentucky that's on the south side. So if there was ever going to be a connectivity route, then that would most likely be the most realistic option. With that, we faced other constraints. Again, the right-of-way constraint in the, on that south side would be about twice as much that would be uh, needed to be acquired for that area um, between Indiana and Louisiana compared to the um, uh, just utilizing a sidewalk in that area. Um, the other constraints we'd be running into is that right now on both sides, the uh, existing facilities for both pedestrian and bicyclists do not accommodate for that shared use path to tie into this area um, with the newly constructed area just west of Indiana uh, along 11th Street. That there was shared at, as Shiro's on the road, as Omar mentioned. That shared use path would then just basically tie back into a five-foot-wide sidewalk crossing that is existing there now. Um, not really a good connectivity route for that. Um, the other effect, as we move east between Louisiana and Ohio, we have the uh, historic um, EHS uh, Bailey House on the corner of, on the southwest corner of Ohio and 11th Street. Um, there, that current path is bricked uh, with a shared use path in there. Most likely, the brick would have to go away. There's also um, limestone wall uh, retaining walls there that may become in conflict as well with a shared use path. Um, and then uh, that shared use path would then again end at Ohio, as in the sidewalk between uh, Ohio and Tennessee would not be reconstructed. So again, we would be running into that same constraint of having a facility go to nowhere at Ohio. One other thing I wanted to mention is we did include some uh, conceptual cost estimates. Uh, I guess first thing is we did do a complete streets checklist for all three options. Um, and current, the level three bikeways was in that area uh, with our pr- preferred option, the climbing lane uh, for the westbound between Tennessee to uh, Louisiana mm-hmm. that would stay at a level three, would not be increasing that. The shared use path would be the only option that we'd actually be able to increase that level. Um, but I was going to get down to the cost estimates. Um, we did do a conceptual cost estimate for the city um, that included all pavement replacement, curb and gutter, and concrete pavement, as Omar had mentioned. That includes waterline reconstruction uh, along Louisiana and 11th Street storm sewer 
along 11th Street, sanitary sewer improvements at 11th and Ohio. Um, and you can see that total cost there, um, just over 2.6 million, or estimating for complete project cost. We then created a delta cost for the additional options. Um, first, that option 1A with the double climbing lane uh, adds a delta of about plus $20,000. And as I mentioned, none of these costs include right-of-way acquisition. And in both cases, for both the double climbing lane or the shared use path, we're looking at uh, twice as much right-of-way needed in that area, as well as probably additional utility conflicts, rock excavation as we move further back, taller retaining walls, uh, handrail protection, uh, those type of things. So the, the costs aren't exact direct comparison cost. Um, what we're just looking at there is what the delta would be for the pavement cost if we're looking at a different option. And then at the bottom, the shared use path, we were looking at a delta of an additional $136,000 roughly. I'm going to go back up to the images, and that is all I have, Omar, if um, you guys have any other questions. I have a question. Oh, sorry. Oh. So I think let's do technical questions first and then turn it over to public comment. Um, I'm going to let Commissioner Sharp go first, and then we'll turn right into you. Just a definition question. How is a climbing lane different from a normal bike lane? Is it just that it's going up a hill or is there additional? It is just for the uphill section and then we transition that roadway back into a, a share road pathway with would be a shared lane between the traffic and the bicyclist. So it is a buffered bike lane that is no different than any of the other bicycle facilities you guys have in Lawrence. And then it would just transition to a share road roadway. Can you tell us how many parking spaces would need to be removed? Roughly between the both two blocks, we are looking anywhere between 10 to 12 spots. Okay. And then what's the slope of the road right there? <laughs> um, very steep. It is, uh, I think what we were looking at with the conceptual design, we were looking at how much of that hill we could cut down to try to improve that. Um, between Indiana and Louisiana, we're still at about 14% slope. And uh, between Louisiana and Ohio, we're at 16%. Wow. Yeah, that's... That's why the bike count is low. That is yeah. why the bike count is low. Yeah. Not for the yeah. pain of heart. Yeah. And that bike count does include those that were walking their bicyclists <laughs> and riding. <laughs> we did confirm that. Would this be the first uh, basically climbing bike lane that we have in Lawrence? As far as I know of. Okay. Well, we need a policy first. Right. No, I mean, I think this is something, you know, we've discussed this before, but it's like this, I feel like it's the first time we've seen a proposal to actually do it. Yeah. And I appreciate that. Yeah. You know, we've talked about it on 9th Street, too, if there's enough space, maybe not for two bike lanes, but one good one <laughs> on the uphill. And, and with this you know, uphill, we connect that bike, that bikeway for 11th Street, which was your future bikeways to the current bikeway path along Louisiana. Mm -hmm. So you do get that connectivity there. And that is where we had most of the bikes this coming was from coming down Louisiana and then going, usually they were going downhill. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. So as a, as an eternal idealist and optimist, I kind of want the best of everything. Obviously there are trade-offs in what you presented. I want to figure out what do we need to further trade off to get everything cool. Right? So I think a climbing lane in either direction would be awesome because they're both very steep streets and it would make sense if you want to go to school and then come back to school to have the same facilities in both directions. 
essentially. That being said, not having a sidewalk on the south side between Indiana and Louisiana, mm-hmm. that kind of sucks, right? So, like, it'd be nice to have that, too. Um, first question is, this is a bus route, isn't it? So we're probably pretty restricted on lane widths. I bet we can't go lower than 12 feet. Is that as low as we can go? Currently, we're at 11 feet for two ways. That's impressive. Uh, so 11-foot lanes each way. Okay. That's actually surprisingly low for us. Mm-hmm. Bus lane. I like it. Okay. Um, second question is, you, you, were, you were mentioning that the roads would kind of line up with most of the options. Is there a requirement for them to line up, or well, could we compromise on that to get more things without having to dig into the mountain, basically? So there... <sighs> To, to line up the geometry is, is your best fit for an intersection. However, um, I, I get your point on, can we get the shared use path in there as well? Uh, the, the issue that we really see is that um, you've recently reconstructed 11th Street already west of Indiana with that development that took place a few years back. Um, and then that obviously continues on to the KU plan um, there at 11th and Mississippi as well. Uh, currently, there is no space to add a shared use path between the buildings and the roadway on the south side there. Um, so adding that shared use path, you're already coming down the hill pretty steep, tying into a uh, a sidewalk. Um, you start running into your stopping conditions for your bicyclists coming down the hill, especially when weather starts to get a little bit uh, more like winter that we're facing now with ice and snow and those kinds of things uh, without having a detailed area there uh, that can, can constrain those bicyclists coming on a shared use path, I think is uh, the roadway in my opinion would be a safer option coming down the hill. Yeah. So I I probably should have been clear. I completely agree with that. I was saying it'd be cool to have the climbing bike lane go in East, but then also Mm -hmm. a sidewalk for pedestrians only, which I recognize at this point, where with the lanes where they are, that couldn't be possible given the mm-hmm. topography in the right of way. That being said, could it be scooched five feet north? Um, because that part's pretty flat. And I mean, you wouldn't have as much of a buffer for the sidewalk, but I mean, if you needed to add rails, I guess you could. I'm just trying to see like what could be possible if we wanted to get both the sidewalk and a climbing lane. Yeah, we could definitely look at the option of moving that road further north. Um, we are already needing to acquire right away from KU. They're on the north side with the current uh, design. Um, okay. That being said, uh, there's already areas that sidewalk is already, the existing sidewalk is already in KU's um, right away area. Mm-hmm. So um, moving it further north is definitely an option. Um, then you would just have your, your crosswalks would be your uh, conflicting points at your intersection then to bring them back to match up further west of Indiana. Okay. Um, and I'm seeing that would probably require a lot more powerful relocation because they're like on the curb, so you definitely mm-hmm. would have to do that. But I don't think that's too bad as long as it's not high voltage, right? It's just mm-hmm. energy will do it for you. Okay, so that's encouraging to hear that there you're saying there's a chance that if we could scooch the road, then we can have a, have a cake and eat it too so i'd like to hear that um i see a couple of turn radii that are on the wide side is that because those are definitely a bus lane and they kind of have to be yeah so especially at uh are you, if you're speaking of the the radii at louisiana yep. with louisiana being a one-way um and college drive also being a one-way uh, we made the entrances and the exits the wider radiuses were the ones that you don't have that um left turn or right turn conflict and uh, points in there we actually did a, uh, decrease those radiuses to help with the fitting the sidewalks in there and the ramps in there to to best fit that area okay that's good um you also said something about you were matching the existing bike facilities on 
Louisiana. Correct. I couldn't see any b- existing bike facilities. Looks like this would be an improvement, not an exact replica. But currently, I don't know. If currently, there are none between okay. 12th and 11th. Would be matching what is south of 12th Street. Uh, I gotcha. Okay. Interesting. Okay. Like it's, uh, it's already designated as an existing bike on the bike plan in the city's bike plan. Is it okay? And there's a sign saying like this is a bike route. I think. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's not a really steep street, isn't it? <laughs> just to point one one other thing on the bike plan. Um, there is on Indiana 11th to 12th Street. There's another path to go up the hill in front of the Orient to go across the hill, which is I believe it's less steep for a bicyclist. Mm-hmm. Okay. Also in the future plan. Okay. I guess as it stands, yeah, I, and I like what I see, and it doesn't look like there's a huge cost differential to get more stuff, with the exception of the unknowables, right? Like how rocky is it? So, um, anybody else have any so other which, which, questions? Clarify which alternative you're talking about in terms of one A. One A. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's one that I think can get us the best thing, but one A with the sidewalk from one mm-hmm. okay yeah. yeah also just out of curiosity was there originally an option two because there's one one a and one b which leads me to believe they may have been a two at some point uh yeah we probably could have named them a little bit better um yeah it was uh uh option two or uh i guess these were kind of option two i think originally option one was actually uh not doing the climbing lanes and just making them sharrows okay keeping the existing parking it seems like every option that we've been presented with is an objective improvement over what's there. So, yeah. I mean, honestly, I'd be happy with any of them, but... I yeah, I think the uh, 1B, the short use path option with the level of pedestrian traffic and trying to share that with bicycles, I don't think that's a, an acceptable yeah. option. But um, but I do like the, the 1A, um, if, as long as we could get a get a sidewalk on the south side. Hey, Nick, I I think you said it well with uh, objective improvement because that's that's one challenge that Jessica has noted that our model for level of comfort Mm -hmm. isn't fine enough to account for a one-direction climbing lane. Yeah, it's weird, right? Because the shares on the the other side, like, you might be going faster than some of the cars. So, like, Mm -hmm. I feel like segregating by speed the way that the Japanese do with Bikes and pedestrians and cars seems to make a lot of sense, and I feel like that could govern how we think about our bike lanes, right? Like, Sharrows are probably fine on 5th Street and Pinckney because you're not going very fast. But on Wakarisa, they're ridiculous, right? Like, it's way too fast. <laughs> Unless you're Lance Armstrong, you are not matching their speed. So, yeah. Um, even though we don't improve the level of service officially, I feel like people will probably see this as an improvement. Mm-hmm. So. Um, Dan, were you going to say something before I cut you off? Um... I don't remember. I think I agree with what Pat said. I think you covered what I was going to say. Okay. Anybody else? I was going to go to public comment, but we need a couple more technical things. Or I bet there's some people who want to comment on this one, and I'd be curious to hear what they have to say. So, okay. Let's go to public comment. Is there anybody on the phone who wishes to? Yep. Okay. Michael Allman. Hi, good evening. I'm Michael Holden with Sustainability Action Network. And uh, from what most of you probably know from my history, I'm always interested in 
the engineering E of the five E's, engineering as opposed to encouragement and enforcement, whatever, you know, to actually physically build something for bicycles, build actual bikeways. In this case, no. Nope, I am opposed to any kind of a bikeway in this facility. Uh, I think the most notable thing that the, the uh, consultant said this evening was that, first of all, 20 bicyclists in their entire account, and they were walking, and that it's a very steep slope. We, this, we know this. We know that, and, and I've tried it when I used to bicycle. I tried to bicycle up Orient Mountain. Uh-uh. <laughs> People are not going to do it. There's no point in having a climbing lane in this street. It's not going to change the angle of the slope to put a climbing lane there. So I would say, if anything, just provide a space for people who have a bicycle in their hands and walk up the hill. Um, now, alternately, I'm looking at $2.7 million for this project. Let's say 1 million would be the proportion for bicyclists. If you want to help bicyclists get up that hill, or for that matter, any hill in Lawrence, Lawrence, maybe we should do what California has done, what Oregon is considering in the legislature this coming year, what Eugene, Oregon, and Ashland have done. They're providing vouchers and rebates and credits for people to buy electric bicycles. Think about it. That would do so much more for bicycling in Lawrence than putting in a million dollars for two blocks in this location of concrete that nobody's going to bicycle up. If you use that million dollars, let's say $500 rebate in Lawrence, for example, that's 2,000 electric bicycles that people could then get on the road. And they not only be able to get up this hill, they could get up any hill in Lawrence. It would go far, far towards um, bicycle, uh, getting people bicycling in Lawrence. Um, I, you know, this is outside the box. This You're talking about, you know, building a project here, and I'm talking about reallocating that money in a different way. Uh, I don't know if you want to consider it like that, but it's a different approach, but I would say much, much more effective. Thank you very much. Thank you, Michael. Is there anybody else on the on the call who has a public comment? Okay, so we'll bring it back up to the commission. Damon, as somebody who actually commutes around. tattle all the time, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean. I can't say that I've biked up that 11th Street Hill. Oh, come on. It's not that bad. <laughs> <laughs> I've done it. <laughs> I didn't like it. But, I mean, to the point on e-bikes, I mean, if you're on an e-bike, you're definitely going to want that lane there. So, mm -hmm. I mean, from that standpoint, I think I would still support the climbing lane. We're only going to see more e-bikes mm -hmm. as we go on in the future. So. I mean, I think providing that infrastructure now is probably the good move. Those scooters may factor into it at some point. They don't necessarily mm. need a climbing lane, but it can't hurt. I don't know. 
I, I mean, I see it as even if they don't use it, they're going to have a walking lane now to walk their bike. It's more space than they've had in the past. So, I mean, you see his point because, yeah, I mean, just because I can get up there on my bike doesn't mean other people can. I feel like that's a, that's a bit of an arrogant brag, right? But, I mean, most people... Once I get my sweet long tail that will fit a kid or two on the back, I'm not going up there anymore. I'm only doing it on my own. So, um, yeah, it's it's pretty hard for people to do it. That being said, college is kind of like your physical peak. So, like, if anybody is going to do it, it's going to be college kids, right? I mean, they're, they're much more likely than the rest of us to pull it off. Um, and as somebody who did bike over, over Hill and Dale to get to college, like, yeah, if you want to go faster than walking, you do bike and, and you learn. Bikes exist in Pittsburgh, exist in San Francisco. Colleges exist there, too. People find a way to get around. So, um, just because maybe in the Midwest we're not used to hills doesn't necessarily mean that I think we should rule out everybody. Um, plus, it's possible that as, you know, maybe it's a space for motorized wheelchairs or other wheel devices that aren't as fast as cars that you don't want on a sidewalk either. And if we can put in a sidewalk on both sides, there is still the option of walking your bike safely on the sidewalk rather than having to ride on a shared use path um, with blind corners that kind of dumps you out onto regular sidewalks. So I think we can still get the spirit of helping people walk their bike up and down the hill with the sidewalks, but also maybe plan for the future with e-bikes, e-scooters, and other mobility devices to be safer on the street. <clears throat> I mean, this is kind of subjective, honestly. It's it's going to be able to us to kind of, you know, toe the line here and see if we're making the right decision. But let's see. Can I just ask for clarification if the sidewalk um, was installed <laughs> and there isn't enough space um, to do the buffered bike lane, would the would the bike lane by itself be still feasible? You mean just with the Shero or just? No, a bike lane without a buffer. Um, yeah, I mean, we could probably look at that option as well without having the buffer in there currently with the, with the buffer, you're looking at widening eight foot, mm -hmm. four foot buffer, four foot lane. So, um, that would reduce it by four foot adding a five, uh, probably most likely a six foot wide sidewalk there. Cause you'd be adjacent to the curb, uh, trying to keep as much of that space narrowed down as you could. Um, you're looking at adding what additional two feet there. Um, we'd have to look at that, but definitely it's still an option. For me, I think the, I think it's a high priority to put the sidewalk in. Yes. Yeah, that's nice. And I don't think a shared use path is really necessary. No, I think sidewalk no. is perfectly fine. Um, but I'd like to have the buffered bike lane. But if, like, it seems like we could maybe scooch sidewalk the street, first. right? I mean, if you take this and move it another five feet over the right, there is more flat ground on the north side. And mm -hmm. Jason was saying that is a possibility and it would avoid other conflicts, perhaps. So I don't know. Um, I know you're trying to get it constructed pretty soon, right? It's like there's a timeline of all, so we can't go too crazy here. But that being said, if it would make things easier to scooch it north a couple of feet or so to avoid utility conflicts, maybe there's a compromise there. Um, yeah, you'd be it'd be shifting, you know, from the amount of right-of-way you needed on the south side to additional right-of-way you'll need on the north side. Yeah. And a lot less excavation. Well, probably still some excavation. It'd probably still be about the same amount of excavation because yeah. um, as you continue to widen that that footprint, you're still going to be 
at that point. And we want to make sure that we're at least keeping a safe distance away from that um, building that's there on the uh, southeast corner. Do you think it'd be possible for the sidewalk to be elevated above the road surface? Or would that require stairs that would then not work with ADA requirements? Because there are a lot of stairs and sidewalks in this area, but whether or not that's allowed is, I don't know. Like, how would you, if you were, say, five feet above to not have to have as crazy of a retaining wall, could you get away with that? That that is an option, but then you'd be putting that retaining wall or that vertical distance between the bike lane um, and the... uh, the, the sidewalk would be there as well. Then you start becoming into clear zone issue of um, oh. obviously a bike lane does not prevent a vehicle from uh, merging into that area. Mm. But uh, obviously a, a retaining wall or even a steep slope, concrete slope of some sort that is elevating that walk would. Okay. So probably not a great idea to elevate the walk then. Sounds like it, it would make it a lot harder to tie into at Indiana as well. Yep. Um, so you'd, you'd really be having that same issue. You're already coming down the hill pretty steep and now you're wanting to, uh, you, you know, the, the vertical distance is going to be the same from start to finish. Mm-hmm. Um, just depends on how you get there. Yeah. And it would probably necessitate stairs, which I don't think are allowed at this point. So, yeah. Okay. Does anybody have an issue with, with asking for a slight realignment to try to accommodate b- sidewalks on both sides and a climbing lane? No, no. Okay. You're fine. Anyone want to make a motion? I can do it, but go for it. All right. Appreciate you. Sure. <laughs> MMTC recommends going with option one a with the addition of a sidewalk on the South side of 11th street between Louisiana and Indiana street, as well as investigation of realignment of that segment North enough to make it all actually happen. Um, I don't know if that requires us to see another set of plans or just like, sounds good run with it. I think if that happened, we wouldn't need to necessarily see anything else. Just kind of assume it's all good from there. Well, you would see some field check plans at Fair enough, you know, yeah. the next stage of design. Okay. We wouldn't have to necessarily bring the concept plans back to us because, yeah. yeah. If, if okay. that's your recommendation and we can make it happen, then we'd make it happen and see it again at field check. Okay. All right. Well, that's the motion then. Second. All right. Uh, Christina, can you call roll, please? Jamie Baltesca? Yes. Brian Reyes is absent. Laura Bennett? Yes. Will Sharp? Yes. Pat Collette? Yes. Charlie Bryan? Yes. Nick Kuzmiak? Yes. Aaron Payton? Yes. Ocean Carries? All right. I certainly appreciate you guys. Uh, flexibility, willingness to kind of change things up, and we'll see what happens. <laughs> so, yep. Yep. Thank you for the recommendation. Thank you. So, yeah. What does that bring us to? All right, next is item number three, Multimodal Transportation Commission Annual Retreat. So we need a recommendation, and we need a committee to develop the agenda. So, Sisters. <laughs> yep, really. Um, you, you kind of said everything that needs to be said. We're looking for uh, probably two to three um, commissioners to, to get together and work with staff to uh, formulate the retreat date and agenda. Okay. If I recall correctly, this is like a total of two to three hours over the next month, right? Yep. A couple meetings, probably. Okay. And I guess now that we can do Zoom pretty well, but they can always be done virtually if we have to, right? Yep. 
Okay. Cool. Good to know. Um, all right. So when it comes to the retreat, I think we usually have it in late January, early February. It's kind of right after we've had our first meeting of the year, if we have it, and also the um, the election of the new chair and vice chair. Um, it's usually a good idea to kind of get somebody who's been around for a while and somebody who has not, at the very least, and then the third person, whoever, right? So um, I guess to that effect, I would in- encourage the new folks to, um, you know, see if they're interested. I know Brian's not here, and who knows, he might like to be involved, but I'm not sure what we can do about that, so... Um, Did he let you know that he wouldn't be here today? Yes. Okay. Yep. Excused. That sounds good. I mean, I think he did jump right in in the last meeting. <laughs> oh, oh, so you're saying we're going to be volunteering? <laughs> I just want to make sure, like, my read on him is that he's he's eager to get involved. That's what I'm reading. And if he was took responsibility to let you know that he couldn't come tonight, then he's following the rules. So that gives me another, you know, two thumbs now up. <laughs> Like, yeah. So he yeah, didn't probably you get volunteered, right? <laughs> I mean that's what I'm kinda of throwing out is like is, yeah. would he be willing to join as our newest member to give that perspective? Yeah. Um I, I feel like he'd be up for it. And if not, you can say no. And we'll still have two members and that's probably fine too. So mm-hmm. um what's everybody thinking in terms of how they want to be involved with this? You know, do you have any any things you really want to see coming up for the next year that would lead to you want to wanting to help drive the conversation? Because that that's kind of one of the benefits of being on this is that by planning the agenda of the retreat, you also are kind of implicitly setting the tone for the year, which is which is interesting. Um, you know, you you choose which things we talk about or at least guide us in that direction, and then that's likely what's going to end up on our docket for the rest of the year. So, that being said. If that is of interest to folks, we got Ryan. <laughs> I'm willing. <clears throat> I'd be interested in working on it. I'd okay. be interested. Yeah. Thanks, Laura. So, from the people who've been here for a while, hey, you three, I am okay with doing it. the The, the trick is that um, I'm going to be on parental leave for the next three weeks, like any day now. So that means I won't be working, <laughs> but it means I will be deprived <laughs> of sleep. So, I mean, I'd be very interested in being on it. I'm just, <laughs> I first want to make sure that other people have a, have a chance to lead stuff to do because I'm, I'm kind of a loud mouth and can control the conversation too much sometimes. So, like, it, this doesn't have to be the Kuzmiak show. <laughs> that being said, it sounds like it's going to be. <laughs> Damon, what's your interest in doing this? Well, I was on the committee the last time for it so i would you know i'm airing more on the side of giving someone else a shot to be involved but well there's you ryan and laura that's how would you feel about that because you've done it once oh um you feel like maybe someone that's been around long? yeah i feel like It'd be a more robust retreat, probably, to have someone longer than I. Or if you want a short retreat, I can get them. <laughs> <laughs> well, the staff is pretty helpful in, in 
helping to yes. generate. I mean, stuff. You know, so you're not really. Stuff drives of, it hard. I mean, yeah, you're not really out on your own to figure it out. Like, in terms of actually getting somebody to host, or sorry, facilitate. That's, that's usually on you guys. You have all the contacts, you have access to the Outlook calendars. Yeah. In terms of finding a spot, we can maybe suggest it, but you know, it usually is on staff for that as well. Um, that being said, what people involved in the committee usually do is help help craft the icebreakers, right? Like try to figure out how we're all going to kind of introduce and reintroduce ourselves to each other, set the tone for the uh, for the day, and see if there's any kind of like guest stars we want to have into, right? Um, so something like at this point, that's going to be us three. Um, do we need to make a motion on that? Is everybody cool with it? Any further discussion? I may so be taking good. a bit of a backseat simply because I'm not going to be, you know, at full capacity, but I can still help, you know, try to bring some institutional knowledge forward. Well, we Thanks. do have to vote on it, don't we? Usually, when we establish a committee, we usually have voted. Seems like a vote kind so of thing. It's in the record. Okay. Who's making a motion? Well, I move that we have a committee to help plan the annual retreat with um, what's Commissioner Ryan's Raza Raza yeah uh, Kuzmiak and Bennett's. I second. Okay, we're ready for roll. Damon Baltesca? Yes. Ryan Reyes is absent. Laura Bennett? Yes. Will Sharp? Yes. Pat Collette? Yes. Charlie O'Brien? Yes. Who's me? Yes. Aaron Payton? Yes. Motion carries. All right. I feel inspired by Jessica. She can work through her whole holidays to give us a T2050 uh, <laughs> sure. plan. The least I can do is two hours <laughs> to make it work. So, all right. Sounds good. Jake, anything else we got to do, or is that that's better work? All right, we'll um, we'll start a doodle poll, I guess. Right to see what's going on. Cool. Um, move on to item number four: multimodal transportation commission meeting calendar. We got to approve it, which is mostly just dates, right? That is correct. Yep. yep. I, I would just highlight that uh, for the most part, we're you know meeting on the first Monday of every month per usual. Um, September is on a Wednesday, and January is actually the second Monday with a, a late start on the study session. Again, we we coordinate with the city clerk to make sure we're not bumping into other meetings. So that's why we had those uh, deviations from the norm. Mm -hmm. And of course, for your information, there's also some uh, future study session topics in regular um, meeting items on the calendar listed. None of those really should be a surprise. Um, you know, it's really from from your all's feedback that uh, populates those two yep. two sections. So, and it's basically what we talked about at the last meeting, right? And we kind of carry these forward to kind of repopulate what have been a fairly depleted list of study session topics. So, correct. Yeah, it looks like for January 9th, we are set with the crossing guard alternatives discussion for study session, just to kind of see what. Could happen. Regular meeting is going to be elections, and there's not really anything else scheduled, but we'll probably have something to talk about, I'm sure. So, okay. I think we can probably entertain a motion at this point unless anybody wants to discuss it further. 
I move to approve the 2023 MMTC calendar. I second. Jamie right. Baltuska? Yes. Brian Reyes is absent. Laura Bennett? Yes. Bill Sharp? Yes. Pat Collette? Yes. Charlie Bryant? Yes. Nick Kuzmiak? Yes. Aaron Payton? Yes. Motion carries. All right. Sounds good. Moving on to staff items. Um, got the safety memo for 13th Street in Massachusetts. Yep. So <clears throat> I think uh, the, the meat of the the uh, information is in the memo, uh, but we did want to get this memo into the, the public realm, you know, showing that we have recently done a project uh, that received safety funding and we did see safety improvement just that we would hope were attributed to the project. Um, so the, I guess the stats are uh, prior to construction of the project, Mass Street was uh, two lanes in each direction, uh, no on-street bike facilities, no turn lanes at the intersection of 13th Street, and we saw 11 crashes and three pedestrian bike crashes in the three years prior to the project. Uh, the most recent three years, those numbers were down to three total crashes and one pedestrian crash. And I, I bike on that facility frequently, and I can't imagine not having a bike lane there. Yeah. Time to get the rest of mastery done, right? <laughs> yeah, it's a good to see, you know, kind of a lessons learned and, like, did, did it work? And I feel like based on what Jessica was saying with the uh, Vision Zero and how we're going to have to have metrics and follow them, but we'll probably be seeing a lot of these in the next few years, if I had to guess. I, that, that, that's my impression as well. Which, frankly, I feel like bolsters our work, right? I mean, Definitely. every time that we do a project that's slightly controversial, if it comes back and like, yeah, but look, it worked. Great, you know? Maybe you'll believe us next time, right? <laughs> so, hopefully. Yeah, I think it's great to see these, and congrats to all involved. Okay, then there's the tabulation of expenditures for the crossing guard program. This looks like a pretty quick one. Kind of continuing the conversation on crossing guards, but uh, just bringing back some data that you had requested previously. Um, and again, this this is just kind of the the numbers that were budgeted for the program, and then kind of accounting for the fact that you know the challenges of using permanent parking staff to cover absences of the the part-time employees that are the guards is is a real um, on, ongoing challenge to the to the parking division budget but accounting for that you know we see that the although we reduced the number of locations in recent years when we adopted the school area traffic control policy that included the crossing guard warrant criteria reduced the locations but funding remained essentially level when we account for the the uh, permanent staff time mm. so the 103 was the budget and then this additional expense basically <laughs> brought it back to the <laughs> yeah essentially made it made, made up the difference to to what it was previously really i believe the first round of 
reduced locations was implemented in in 2021. So it worked. Oh, um, yes, I guess it wasn't lower budget yet. So in 2023, I guess we're, we're about to see if it was the same thing. Yep. Yeah. Well, it's a good thing that you're bringing up the idea of more holistically looking at this because it sounds like there's maybe a opportunity for improvement here in terms of just who, who does what, where the budget comes from, how it's spent, how it's, you know, planned out logistically. And this comes out of a parking budget? Is that... That's an amazing amount of revenue that was lost. <laughs> Seventy seventy seven hundred dollars in revenue lost. And this is just from people not paying their ticket or not getting ticketed when they should have been ticketed, right? That that's my understanding, yeah. yeah without the the actual staff enforcing the expired meters and whatnot, then we lose that revenue. I wonder if there's additional revenue loss with the parklet program because meter spaces were taken out. But I mean the same amount of people are probably going downtown, so like they're parking somewhere. Um it's interesting. If is there any possibility to do automated enf- enforcement? I know this is way off of on a tangent, but like, is that one of those things that Kansas forbids us to do because of some kind of invasion of privacy thing? I believe we're doing at least some automated. In I believe in the lots, we definitely are. Mm-hmm. The two-hour lots or the, the the ones that don't have meters. Um, I okay. believe are automated. I think the at least the mass street meters are still. The staff. Yeah. I mean, with the coin ones, there's not much you can do about it, right? But with the Park Mobile stuff, I wonder if that's automated. I, I believe it, it is. That the, it's, I guess it's still a staff person drives a vehicle around, but hmm. um, somehow reads the plates and knows if, you're, if you've paid up or not. I guess by automated, I mean if you're, like, if you are found to, like... If your meter runs out, it's like, okay, that, that license plate, cross-reference with this address, send it to its address, problem solved. Nobody ever has to get involved. I don't know if it's that automated, right? That seems a little bit too futuristic for us. I don't believe so. Okay. So we have to know that the vehicle's still there, and that's the... Yep. It would require some sensors. Okay. Anyway, that's another discussion entirely. So, okay. Well, cool. It'll be good to talk about this more in January and see kind of what our next steps could be, but... Thank you a lot for looking up that data and very interesting to see it. <laughs> hmm. Okay. Uh, commission items. T2050 steering committee update. Do we need one? Yeah, I don't think we, I think we got it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Session. There is a meeting tomorrow night. So uh, on the modeling, right? Yeah. Okay. And then there will be another one in January. And I can't remember if that happens before our January meeting or not. And mm. I, can't, I'm not I can't remember now, but okay. And there's the Climate Action Plan Steering Committee. So they're still doing their um, focused sort of engagement meetings. Mm -hmm. So we haven't met Steering Committee, but we do have one next Friday. Mm -hmm. Is our next meeting. Okay. Sounds good. Uh, For the Land Development Code Steering Committee update, uh, we're having our second meeting ever on Thursday. So I think based on what we talked about with the T2050 plan and the progress, there will be some interesting things to bring up because it turns out um, it's really good that we got a transportation person on the on the steering committee. Right. Um, so, yeah, I have no idea what the agenda is going to be like or if they're even going to ask us questions or just kind of talk at us, but we'll see. I'll have a much better update next time. Okay, uh, the calendar. Before we move on. Oh, sure. The um, 
That's right. Sorry. Other commission items. <laughs> Tomorrow, the city commission has on their agenda the appointments to the committee that's going to be examining the committees the, all the committees <laughs> yeah the committee uh, of the committees just point that out because you know one of the possibilities is this commission would be um, changed because mm -hmm. of that so that's right maybe become something different um, so do we nope. know if any of us are going to be on that no uh, none of the none of this group no mm -hmm. interesting but I know it was supposed to represent various uh, chairs of different existing committees. Okay. Along with some other stakeholders. Should be interesting. Yeah. I think their work's going to be done re relatively quickly. So thinking about the retreat, you know, it might be the last retreat. <laughs> you know, yeah, we'll, yeah, we'll generate priority items for who, whoever succeeds us as a group. Right? <laughs> well, it might be important to... Like pay attention to what's driving the conversation about examining the committees. It's the city's strategic plan. Mm -hmm. So how do we better understand that plan? Not just for the transportation related items, but maybe just broadly understanding it. So it could lead to the kind of merging that we've talked about for years with PTEC and MMTC, right? Yeah. I mean, if, if you were streamlining committees, that's a very easy one to streamline, right? So yeah. I'll be curious to see what happens. So. Any other commission items? Don't cut anybody else off. All right. The only thing I wanted to mention, I just remembered, just, I got this in the mail today. It's a uh, the National Cooperative Re uh, Highway Research Program Synthesis, and it's micro-mobility policies, permits, and practices. I haven't had a chance to read it, but I thought it might be... Uh, an interesting resource for us this coming year. It looks pretty new. Yeah, yeah. It just it was just reprinted this recently. I guess that'll be one of the benefits of being a late adopter is that as we try it again, other people will have already learned lessons, and we can just read it instead yeah, of having I mean, to call that's people. A, and... That's the thing with the synthesis projects with with the there's two research programs and the synthesis you know, really does the survey across the country and looks at what other communities have done and then some best practices out of, out of those. So it might be a useful, useful tool. It will definitely be a useful tool. Yeah. Thanks for noting that. All right. Any other commission items? All right. Let's talk calendar. So this was our last meeting. And... Looks like there's two study sessions for January 3rd, which is not going to happen. <laughs> oh, sorry. This is actually the 2022 sheet I'm looking at. Yeah. Never mind. <laughs> so, I mean, we don't really have to do anything about it, right? It's, it's over. <laughs> you want to meet again in December? Oh. <laughs> so, I, mean, I like you guys, but <laughs> it's tough to do. <laughs> related to the calendar, though, for the January 9th meeting, mm -hmm. um, we've got planned in there the election of the... Chair and vice chair. Yeah. Did we, I know we talked a little bit about this. Did we get clear on if our bylaws allow us to vote the same chair if we wanted to do that, or do we need to? They don't explicitly say you, that you can't. Okay. It's only that you can't have more than two consecutive terms on the commission at all. 
Okay. But in elected or yeah, in an elected position, there don't appear to be any limits. Yeah, I looked at that. Sort. I didn't see any. It's, there's nothing specifically mentioned. I don't think the founding fathers ever anticipated that somebody would do more. <laughs> <laughs> willing to do it. Well, I think we just had a practice. We've had a practice of taking different turns, and I didn't want to. Um, seem like we were open to the possibility of not doing that. Yeah. You know, for the first time, so um, I wasn't sure you wanted to have a discussion about. How we're going to do that? Are we going to seek nominations? I think in the past we've. I think we should still seek nominations emailed, for sure. We emailed David if we were. There was someone we were wanting to nominate. I can't remember exactly how we've done that. I feel like we didn't go into it totally blind. I do think it would be good for people who maybe haven't been here long enough to know what it's like to be a chair, and that I mean the first things first. You don't have to do it like I did. I I didn't have to do it like Pat did, and you didn't have to do it like. Charlie did. Everybody does a little bit differently. You basically just yeah, have to. That's right. I don't think I was there at the time, but I don't think I was there for three years either. But no, I got mine done. <laughs> First year. Sure. Um, you don't. Ha basically, it's not as difficult as I feel like. I make it for myself sometimes. It can be a lot simpler. <laughs> so, um, if it, if the way I'm kind of overbearing is a little bit in intense for you, maybe turns you off of the idea. Don't let that color your your impression of what being a chair is like so working with staff is very easy um having a co-chair has really helped frankly i think that's a good it's it's been good to kind of bring the co-chair in further to discussions over s schedules meetings so like you don't have to do it all yourself which is nice so anyway that being said i am i'm willing to do it again but i'm also totally willing to step aside so don't let me drive the whole thing and the time commitment basically is another meeting like a week and a half before it's an additional work. hour month yeah yeah an hour meeting for agenda planning so more importantly i would say it's it's critical that as the chair you got to read the stuff in the agenda it's embarrassing yeah. i can tell you from personal experience when you don't so it it does you can't really skimp on <laughs> on prep um so there's that otherwise it's not too bad honestly even even if i keep forgetting what to do exactly every time staff's there to kind of guide you past chairs there to guide you you only look like a full temporarily, so it's not the worst. Anyway, just consider it, sleep on it. David, are you, how do you feel about stepping up into the chair role? Oh, I think we talked about it before. I don't think I'm quite ready to okay. step into chair, but I'm happy to vice chair again. Um, okay. I'm also happy to step aside if new members are interested in the co-chair. That's true. The chair is open also, so. All right, sounds good. I think we've covered that, and I just want to make sure, like I said, everybody's aware that it's going to happen because mm -hmm. sometimes it's like the day before, like, oh yeah, a chair. <laughs> Forgot about that. Mm -hmm. um, we need to talk about work plans. That's it. Adjournment. Um, I guess everybody, raise your hands if you're good to go. I'm good to go. Thank you, staff, for staying with us for a while. That was a a good meeting, I think. Alrighty. Yes, if I don't see y'all.